It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L. D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. This week, we made a special trip to my hometown to visit and to, to sit and share and hear the story and stories of the great things, the high, the lows, the good, the bad, the good, bad, and the ugly, things that happened in the home, my hometown of Franklin. I got one of our community leaders and legends here today. Most of the people who from that area, they're going to know it when you hear your name, Mr. Murphy J. Armelin. Welcome to Count Time. Uh-huh. Happy to be here. No, not as happy as I am. <laughs> <laughs> not as happy as uh, I am. Uh, I, I, I don't even know where to start at, Mr. Armelin, because you have been a blessing to me, to my family, and to the community of Franklin, Louisiana, for many, many years. When you stepped up, when you stepped up on the scene, it was it was time. It was count time then. <laughs> it, it was time because you came at a time when when things that were looking too pretty, things weren't too bright. The future was looking dim for the community of Franklin, but you came here and had a made a huge, huge impact on so many young men and young women. Singer Hanley, I have to give the credit to what you've done, what you did, and how you kept us focused as a people, as a community, because of what you stood for and what you want to see come out of these young men and women at a young age. So I, I, we all owe a lot to you and your lovely wife, Miss Earlene, for, for being so supportive of our community. And, and you know why I'm saying that, because you know where, that, where that's going. <laughs> <laughs> but before we even get to that, Tell us a little bit about the Murphy J. Armelin. Uh, well, I'm third of, uh, of 11 children. And my parents are James and Phyllis uh, Armelin Sr. Another and I want to make, yeah. <laughs> and uh, there were 11 of us, five boys and six girls. I tell you, not being over responding, but truthfully, my parents, I thought they did an excellent job with each one of us. And uh, today, I think about some of the things my dad told me. He said, uh, one thing, each one of you in here, the 11, will get at least a high school education. That made a big impression on all of us. Just back then, just a high school education was, was major for, That's right. for a family. There were a lot of limitations coming from a big family like that based on the fact uh, my dad worked at a mill, sugar mill. Which one he worked at? Columbia and Katy. Oh, and Katy outside of Franklin. Right. Okay. And uh, he also did bootlegging haircut. That's <laughs> Bob, <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and uh, in addition to that, he uh, raised a garden, 
Uh, we had uh, a few uh, animals like uh, a hog, uh, chicken, sometime, and uh, and it, you know we all had chores to fulfill at that time, and uh, uh, things were very very hard too during those days. And you, know, you probably heard of that. Dad would uh, go to work and come in and made sure that everything was done. We had to definitely perform our tasks. Uh, my mom was uh, very instrumental in uh, making sure that we got the needs, the supplies that were uh, given to us during the course of the day while my dad was gone. And what's your mom's name? Phyllis. What was her maiden name? Uh, Dallas Bowl. Oh, Dallas Bowl. Mm -hmm. We had a good time. We got along quite well as a family. You now, know. where did you grow up at? I grew up in Baldwin. Okay, but your dad worked at Katie. He you worked at Katie, yeah. I grew up in Baldwin, and uh, I had a job, a little job after school. I worked at a Bro's Food Store. That's the one located on the corner of Rosebud and Main Street. Still there? Still there. Okay. It's an old building. Right. And then uh, eventually it moved to... Uh, the Shanton Road, Chittimacha Trail. And uh, I may have worked over there about two days, and that's the time uh, I thought about uh, uh, going to college. My father offered that schooling to go, we could go to college. He said he wouldn't do as much as he could to help each one of us go. And uh, I can tell you, with 11 kids in the family, you know, no vehicle. Uh, in the family, and uh, my dad had to, you know, pay people some way or another, uh, vegetables or money, you know, whenever he had it, and there was a need to take one of us a certain place. So uh, I gave it some thought, and I thought about the families of uh, the full cards who had a car, and they helped. Uh, me going to school. In addition to that, there was uh, Charles Howard family. I don't want to leave anybody out. The Middletons that time, we, I rode with them. And uh, Mr. Bourgeois, who had a school bus, took most of us back and forth. So, now, what school did you attend? Uh, I was going to uh, Southern University at that time. So, so Mr. Bourgeois had a bus that brought a lot of students from the area, the Baldwin and Franklin area. Now, what, what was Mr. Bushwa's first name? That's, that's not who the name of school, H.L. Bushwa out there. No, no, oh, no, it's not that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I've forgotten. Yeah. He uh, would, uh, any time a holiday would develop, you know, a holiday came around, we would uh, uh, call him in, or I would call and tell him that we were ready to come home, or to, uh, would he come and pick us up? There were a total of uh, maybe 20-some people that rode that bus. He would drive down and pick us up. And whenever time was for us to return, he would bring us back in that area, back to South. Did, did he charge or anything? Well, yeah, he charged us. Uh, but I tell you, uh, the Chaffalai uh, Basin Bridge was not there. So we had to go through 190, go through Opelousas and... Back, back yeah, road. back road and what have you. So it did take us quite a bit of time to travel in that direction. And uh, once I got to uh, 
Southern. Well, what year did you arrive at Old Southern University? Uh, 1962. I uh, had the opportunity to uh, meet certain individuals who were there, outstanding students like uh, H. Rap Brown. Uh, he, he, he was... <laughs> Abram <laughs> was military. <laughs> yeah. I met him and uh, then uh, he was Muhammad. He was a student? He at was Southern? a Yeah, H. Rap Brown was a student at Southern. There was, uh, we were able to see a lot of young men. Southern was one that pulled a lot of black uh, celebrities to the university, like Cassius Clay at the time. Uh, then there was. Uh, a number of uh, musicians that we were into Lyceum attractions going on. We were able to see uh, stars like uh, Jerry Butler. Thanks like Jerry that. Butler. Yeah. Now, now, coming from the big city of Baldwin, you really had not did any traveling. I never did. That was the first time I ever left Baldwin was when I went to college. So that was a major, oh, it was. major it was, undertaking. Yeah. For your and family, too. That's right, very much so. You know, one being uh, absent from the crew. However, uh, my brother, I'll take that back, clarification on that, uh, James went to the military. He joined uh, the Army. Say, I'm the second oldest boy in my family at that time. I had a sister, Barbara, who was uh, second uh, child in the family. And then I was the third. Now, who's, the, who's the oldest? James. James Jr. James yeah. James right. Just name name all of the. Uh, can you remember everybody's name? Yeah, I think I can. <laughs> uh, there's uh, James, uh, Barbara, who's deceased now. Then I came on third. I put them in that order, and then uh, Martha. She was, and uh, from there they came to uh, C.J. Clifton Arlen. Uh, Raymond, Clyde, and uh, sisters. Uh, there was Vern. There's Martha. I did call Martha. Uh, Vern, Sylvia, uh, Shannon, Sharon, being a baby, and I think that's it. That's it okay. Yeah. I, I wasn't counting, but. Don't, a total never, of never, 11. Seem, never seemed like more than that. Yeah, <laughs> 11, gone, 11, a, a total of yeah, 11. We, we had eight, that's a lot, so 11 is a whole lot. So yeah. you arrived on the big campus of the Southern University, the Southern in University. 1962. 62. No, take that back. It was 1958, I graduated from high school. Right. So I arrived there in 58. 59. Oh, I graduated in 62. Oh, you graduated all right there. Yeah, that, all I'm that's glad important. you made that correction. <laughs> okay, all that's, that's important. Right. Now. Yeah. Because that's, that's, you know, that's, you don't really think about it anymore. Yeah, you know, that's right. So in 1958, you, you, you land on a campus of Southern University, so you had one, you had one little suitcase, or you didn't have a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can went in uh, bags, paper bags. <laughs> 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 yeah. And, uh, I tell you, it was quite a, an experience because uh, living, first time living somewhere else, you know, outside of the family. Now, now where did you live at on the campus? Uh, when I first got there, I lived in uh, freshman dorm in uh, room 305. Oh, there was eight of us in the room. Eight? Eight. 
And the majority of the kids in there were students from New Orleans. Okay. And, so uh, you're one of the few that even came from this area. That's it. Well, there was uh, Cornelius Peckle, uh, Ernest Middleton. We were all in the same, just about the same. And Arthur Prevost. We were all in the same room. And uh, there were four others from New Orleans. And it was something quite a... You talk one little dorm room. That's right, one little dorm room. The, the one, I can remember the bathroom was located on the end of the hall. And the surprising thing, the the four guys that were from New Orleans, they were all music majors, yeah. and that interfered with the study out of study. And most time we had to go to the uh, biology building, or go to some room. You know, somewhere away from our room. But they play music. They play music. You hear that sound. <laughs> I don't care what time of night you go there, you heard a sound like that. You know, they were singing or they were doing their. Uh, so they played the band too, probably. Yeah, they played in the band. They played okay. in the Southern band. What, what was Southern band was big at that time? It certainly was. It was big. And, oh, so uh, it was. So yeah. So and the, so uh, the, there was only two schools that uh, blacks could go to. I was Grambling and to uh, Southern. Of course, I chose Southern at the time because it was close to the home. And I knew very little about Grambling, and I knew the fact that it was uh, far away. But so I chose to go to uh, Southern University. Yeah. But that means, so, but that move to go to your dad, so you only worked two days before you decided to go to college. Yeah, well, we worked, uh, yeah, I worked the, uh, Bros were very helpful in getting me started, you know. I mean, but what, when you went to work at Bros, what hit you to say, well, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I don't want, I'm definitely not going to work at the well, shirt game. Well, actually, uh, I never thought that I would go to college, and I never thought that, uh, you know, what hit me was the fact that, uh, I found out that I wanted to do something. And uh, Daddy would always say that uh, always make your family or make life better for your family just like I'm doing for you, trying to make life better for you. So he said you need to start and start thinking about some of these things, what you want to do. And at first I went to Southern with the idea of becoming an uh, uh, an architect architectural engineer and uh, now, then now. Now you just left high school what high school you attended uh, Willow Street Willow Street Elementary. right that was in Franklin Willow right. Street Willow Street High and what you knew about architect engineering? well I knew very little and uh, until I got there and I heard some of the people on the campus talking about him what happened and I had an aunt uh, Eula Patty Smith who worked at Southern Lab and she, in turn, uh, told me, said, look, you got to think about what you want to do, where you want to live when you get through. And uh, she said, there's no such program back in Baldwin or Franklin where you could work to uh, support your family or whatever. And I gave it some thought. And then she said, where you want to live? I told her I'd like to go back to Baldwin, my home, because that was the first time I ever been away from home that long. So I chose uh, education. So I went into education and I got started and 
to begin with, uh, to be honest, I didn't do so well. <laughs> no, not <laughs> and, too much, uh, Dominic. <laughs> I didn't do so well. To be honest, I didn't. And a uh, sister, oldest sister of mine told me, she said, look, uh, you did quite well when you were in the high school. Now, here you are in college, and everybody is supporting you and hoping you do better. I said, now, you're going to have to turn things around by the end of the semester, in which I went on and made every effort to do better. So things started getting better. And... Uh, but you, you were not partying all night long. Oh no, I wasn't partying. Uh, I wasn't doing that. It was just so much going, uh, going on. First time uh, I wanted to go back home. You know, you know, I hadn't been away, and so finally uh, there was yeah, a lot of people were very supportive up there, and they told me, "You better say, man, would you stay?" And then you know, there was something. Someone told me said, "Well, I'm not going to worry about it." And he said, uh, because the job that I had back home said would be available for you because you're not going to stay. A light bulb entered, and they said, you know, I'll go back home. Then I'm going to be embarrassed because that individual told me I wouldn't stay. So uh, afterward, I, I said, no, I got to stay. And I stayed. You know. I made. Uh, Several little excuses prior to that about, you know, I was not feeling well and all that. I wanted to come back home. But like I said earlier, there were some people who sort of motivated me and told me, you know. And it was just hard uh, because Daddy had, uh, and my mom had trouble in getting me a meal ticket on time. Mm. And, uh, knowing that he had to take care of the family back home. Sometime the, uh, the meal ticket wouldn't come, as I said, on time. And there were some of the guys from home who uh, would allow me to go and eat off of their meal ticket, certain meal. And uh, I can remember uh, uh, if not the meal ticket didn't come on time, she would send through Mr. Bourgeois, send a package to me me to eat until the money would come and I would be able to go and get a meal ticket. It was tough. A sacrifice. And you, and, now, and you what I eat? Peanut butter, <laughs> <laughs> evangelium bread, <laughs> and uh, there were times that uh, they had a sale and uh, money would come in. I would go to uh, a, street, a store on uh, Swan Drive and pick a few items like spaghetti. I didn't have a hot plate, so I would take the spaghetti, uh, the Facebook, and put hot, hot water <laughs> and heat the spaghetti in the can so that I would have a hot meal. So, that was yeah. the, so you took a cold meal in there by putting the can yeah. in the hot water? Ten cents, and oh, it took a long time because then the water would get cold, <laughs> and then I'd have to keep it in there again. And, so, Open up a can and all that. That was pretty creative to make a hot oh, yeah. meal. And uh, it was tough. I'm going to tell you, it was tough. And uh, in addition to that, man, you, you had to be on campus on time because uh, if you would try to go to the store, there was a little, little store as you entered over the railroad track on uh, uh, what's the one in front of you, pass in front of the Southern Lab, uh, 
Is that Harding Blue? Or no, Harding's the next street. Yeah, over. Well, well, but Swan Drive. That's no. Swan. That's Swan. Yeah. The one that's yeah, Swan Drive. Well, anyway, I would go there, and there was a, a man would cook, and he would sell uh, a plate of red beans or something like that. And I might have a little change to go over there and get something hot over there. Uh, so just think about that. You in college, <clears throat> you know your your family got very limited resources, but you got to eat. That's right. So you right. you got to you got to make a meal some kind of way. Well, you know, I mentioned my sister said the grades were not good. You know, at the nine week, and uh, I found look like uh, the university. You know, they were tough because they figured. Some of you were coming up there to play and have a good time, and they wanted to prove to you that uh, they weren't going to give you anything. You had to work for what you need. And uh, I just put it in my mind. I said, look, I'm going to go and do what's best for me. And I know uh, there were some people when I would come back home, and they'd say, you don't want to come back to this. You don't want to do it. You want to do uh, better for yourself. And I knew. Uh, being a teacher, they were well recognized in the community. Well respected at the time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I said then that, uh, yeah, I would like to be a teacher because this is where I want to come back, come back home. And that's where I end up being. Okay, but being in Baton Rouge, you own your own. I mean, you do have a, some, some of level of family, but your family is really in Baldwin. And you got to make it work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had to study. The first, the first semester, you didn't do well. Yeah. So now you got to step your game all the way up. Oh yeah, very much so. Now you, plus you got to put nutrition in your body. That's right. So, and you wasn't, you know, you wasn't out. You wasn't that outgoing where you was hanging out all the time. Oh no, I wasn't. No. So uh, and you didn't, you didn't. Uh, I've always known you to be very athletic, but you didn't play sports in school. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I wanted to play football, but my mother and dad didn't want me. You know, they just figured, uh, you know, it was a rough game like some of them do. And uh, but we had a little team down there, makeup team, what have you. They would go play a little baseball, and I would play a little bit during the time. And I was off during the summer. I went to summer school one summer, and uh, I did pretty good. Took enough hours. And uh, I was, uh, time came, my uh, counselor told me, said, you know, you're eligible to graduate. I didn't even know I would be able to graduate at the time in which I did What's graduate. about high school? No, Co college. college. Oh, okay. And I had taken enough hours, and she told me, said, oh, yeah, you can graduate at this. <laughs> but I was, so, <laughs> I was trying hard to get everything done, and I just figured I had to stay another summer at least before I would graduate. I made it out, and that helped a lot to a uh, very good counselor and that, know, that, some people. The first year, okay, what was very tough for you? Did it, did college get easier, or you just started? Oh yeah, as far as social life, I mean, getting along with people and knowing what to do, and uh, during that time, uh, I was a little upset too because when it came down for a semester to enroll into 
the next semester, sometime you get in one line and you get all the way to the end. <laughs> and they would tell me, oh, you in the wrong line, you got to go over to somebody else. And boy, that would get me frustrated. I said, man, that was one of the things that said, look, I'm tired of this. I had to put up with it for four years, you know. When year was that? 1958? 1958, 59, 60, 61. I got out, I graduated in 62. Well, 2022, they say the same thing, it's still happening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I could imagine it's probably it. But uh, that's the thing that got me, man. I was so upset with that. And uh, I mean, but, the, but your college days became very rewarding to oh, you. You got yeah, to meet a were. lot of great people. Yeah. To be in a lot yeah. of different oh, atmospheres. On the end, there were professors I'll never forget. Her. And incidentally, there was Miss Dorothy Young. She was very helpful, you know. She looked looked like uh, it appeared to me rather that she uh, took care of Franklin people, Frank uh, and Baldwin people in back here because she worked here and this was her hometown. Oh, and she taught yeah. she taught on Southern campus, and <clears throat> she was very helpful to us. And then in addition to that, we had uh, integration going on. Uh, we couldn't go to certain lunch counters in Baton Rouge, and uh, were you, were you, I was one of the ones. You were one of, pro, one of the protesters? Yep. At the Crest? At, and uh, at the time, Dr. Clark had to close the university down. Uh, we went downtown, and uh, they asked that we not come, and we defied their orders and went down, dressed up there, uh, they picked about nine of us up early, and there was a little group. We stayed together, Franklin group, Arthur Lee Adams, uh, I mean Previos, uh, Cornelius Pecco, uh, Ernest Middleton, myself, and uh, may have been one or two others. However, we went around Woolworth lunch counter, and we marched around in front of the store. That was Woodworth or Crest? No, Woodworth. Woodworth, okay. And we got there, and uh, we uh, there were so many people that took part, you know, and what happened. But we were the first one, and there was a lady came out, and she took a pint of uh, ice cream and threw at us, and it scattered on, you know. Then it got close to closer to us. And uh, some tried to shove or push or excite us in some way or another. There was uh, all kind of policemen, U.S. Border Patrol, all I mean, various uh, law enforcement uh, came to uh, the area. And then afterward, uh, we were so afraid, you know, to be honest, because I thought something would happen. Lady, it was one lady that was pregnant. And she tried to push herself into us. And we would step back and not hit her or touch her or anything. And uh, we kept wondering to say, how in the world are we going to get out of this? And finally, I looked down Third Street. Here comes about two or 3,000. I look another direction. <laughs> so students are coming. Yeah, black faces. So y'all was the first ones to Yeah. We were the first oh, one up there. On ground and, zero. We right. Ground and zero. then here we look another area here, another 2,000. And boy, you could 
feel the, the, the energy. Yeah, yeah. The, the, just, support, just so happy to support. support. Right. But yeah. in addition, they put the uh, the police force came out and they mentioned to us. They said we told you not to come, and they had tear gas, and they threw tear gas at us. And I was looking. Uh, they. The, the uh, police was in uh, uniform and they were, uh, you know, Riding standing, and yeah, in uniform, but ready. I mean, uh, getting ready to do, I thought maybe uh, some kind of little march or whatever they wanted to do out front, but they were standing and finally they got, the, uh, they were given cadence to uh, throw tear gas and what have you, and they threw tear gas at us. And I was laughing at one incident where somebody got plastered with it. And I shouldn't say that, but anyway, truthfully, uh, one fell right beside me, and there I was. <laughs> and believe me or not, uh, what happened at the end of that altercation, there was a lady in a station wagon uh, of the object race came and picked all of us up and told us to get in a station wagon. And she saw the people, the policemen, they had dogs and uh, putting you in the little wagon, paddy wagon they called. And uh, she took us to the campus, brought us to Southern. That's how we got back safely. So, so you say a white lady then? Yeah, yes. Pick you all up? Pick us up. She, she wouldn't want what you call them a ladder. Could have been. Uh, could have been, but she took us to the campus. I don't think she was a mulatto. I think it was okay. just a white lady at that time. Now, what year was this? This was probably in 1960. 1960, yeah. the March. Yeah. And, and that was on the, on the Dr. Clark. Felton he was Clark. the president of Southern, yeah. And when we got back, we, uh, we got an early arrival for Christmas. We left, I think, on December 14th that day and we stayed and they said that uh, they wouldn't know when they would open up Southern University again. So we had to, we stayed at home and finally word came in. They did open up and uh, we went back a little later and uh, that's the way it was. So you're telling me the Franklin crew led the... Franklin crew and uh, there was uh, maybe one or two others beside us. But y'all led the whole march. Y'all started the whole process. We started walking and they needed people who were dressed. And they picked us up and brought us over there. Oh, so, so we had to get there. Yeah, they needed somebody in front of the lunch counter before the crowd would get up. Okay, did, did y'all, were y'all at the lunch counter? Yeah, we were. No, we didn't go in the lunch counter. They wouldn't, we only marched around it, in okay. front of it. And then finally we had a minister from uh, Hightown, North Carolina. And he came and he said, uh, we're going to go in the lunch counter. I'm going to sit down and do. And when he said that, that's when the tear gas started, started coming. Because they, they, they knew that it hurt. Yeah, we had gone too far because we were told not to come. Uh, the sheriffs told us not to come downtown. And so we, we uh, went on, and uh, that's what happened at that time. I did not know that anybody from Franklin was involved in that march down on uh, For on verification, Mrs. Uh, Dorothy Young could tell you that uh, we, were one of the, we were the ones that went there. In fact, uh, 
there was a certificate awarded to us at, uh, it was Park Avenue at the time. And they recognized people like Dolores Madison, uh, the Middletons, Peckle, and maybe a few, I can't tell, uh, Prevost, Arthur Prevost, and uh, Peckle, and myself for being in that march. Did, uh, how did y'all even know about what was getting ready to happen? Somebody was... Well, yeah, was we had leaders on, on the campus. Uh, we had a guy by the name, the president of Southern at that time was Marvin uh, Robinson. Yeah, Marvin Robinson, right. He was a track guy. So mm. yeah. Yep. You're right. Yeah. He surely was. Marvin Robinson. Marvin Robinson. So, uh, but and Marvin has, I heard, came out the, probably out the military. So he came from somewhere else. Yeah. Somewhere else. Yeah. North, yeah. Right? yeah. No, but, but how, how, how did you get involved? Now, you just told me that well, you were starving on campus. We had <laughs> meetings on campus. You know, we, we had meetings and, uh, you know, we had our leaders. We had, uh, like I mentioned to you, there was a uh, 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 Stokely Carmichael, Rab Brown. He was he would he. I don't know if he visited the campus, but we heard so much about it. And then there was a uh, Rab Brown. I don't know. Rab still living. In yeah, even even they put him in prison ten years or so ago. Oh yeah. Charged with some kind of yeah. shooting somebody oh, at okay. a store. Yeah. He's been locked up ever since. Oh okay. Because I remember I went, I had gone on campus and uh, he was, uh, it was a football game, nothing, everything was over with at the time. And he uh, recognized me at the time, you know, said, hey, Armland. And I saw my <laughs> new him, I said, oh, rap, you know, like, how, you know. How long, and, how long ago was this? Oh, this was quite a long time, you know, mm -hmm. I graduated, just got back and I saw him over there. So, so y'all had that kind of relationship that yeah, knew each other. Yeah. Uh, there's also a book uh, he had written called Die Nigga. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you read that oh, book yeah. you saw? <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, I had that book. He uh, also uh, told about uh, how things were and at the time and blacks would buy a car in Baton Rouge. They would recognize him and, uh, you know, the police at the time would stop him. Because, you know, just figure what you're doing with that kind of car. You couldn't afford to get that car. But I think his daddy had worked at a, a refinery in Baton Rouge, and he was able to have it. And he was a person that uh, very vocal. And uh, the cops stopped him one time, and they put a mom had to put her hand over his mouth. He was about 13 years old because he was there. <laughs> he was going to say he would talk. No, so let, let's get back to okay. Marvin Brown was the, the Marvin Robinson. Marvin Robinson led the the uh, the whole whole idea. He was the uh, president of the student body. Student body. Yeah, student body president. And uh, <clears throat> so you started going to the meetings, but what did, what hit you to say, well, you know, I want to be a part of this. I want to. Well, uh, the thing about it, I, I knew some things were not right. And I just felt, you Coming know. Coming from a small town like Yeah, Baldwin. I just knew, you know, uh, I saw what people were fighting for, others were, and it, it made sense to me. And uh, I just went on, however, I did defy my uh, aunt because she taught at Southern. and uh, Southern Lab? Yeah, Southern Lab. What was her name? Eula Patty Smith. 
and her husband worked at Southern. He was a plumber. What was his name? Um, Joe. Joe. Joseph uh, Smith. And uh, she mentioned that uh, staying with her, she told me, she said, you know, uh, this is my job. And, you know, and I respected that. And uh, I didn't, you know, like I said, I defied her and I went with the group downtown. And she said, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to have a job if you do that. And I was living with it. And I felt bad about it at the time. But I still felt that I had to do you was some, some Was it something compelled within you? At that time, just to do. Just, just the right thing. Yeah, you just, I'm was. just fighting for human rights. That's all you wanted was, yeah. was human rights. Yeah. And that was that was hard to come by. Yeah, and I'll tell you, uh, it got better, you know, the more and I saw that. Uh, you know, the more we did, the better things became, you know. Uh, people start treating you like a human being. Not because the color of your skin. But you, know. you, but you found out once you take a stand for something, that there are consequences. Oh yeah. But there are some, there are great rewards too. Oh yeah, too. that's right. But uh, you know, that was my home, and uh, I looked at it like that. I said, you know, uh, and people are there back, and then you can do so much with numbers. You know, I'm talking about with people at that time. A lot of people at that time saw that. You know. So that the students know that's more of us than they are there. Mm -hmm. And we know our mom and dad can't yeah. do this. Yeah. Because they they've been struggling all their oh, life yeah. just to survive. Yeah. So we gotta to make it better for ourselves, we gotta do something. We that's gotta right. take a stand. That's right. That, so that, we did. We we took that stand and uh you know, it got better and from that time on everything uh I think I stayed about maybe a year a year year and a half longer or two years maybe because i graduated in 62 came back home and when i got back home i got uh, uh i went to graduation of course and uh i got back home uh, there i said i'm gonna start looking for a job and i didn't make an effort until two days before uh, school open. <laughs> I went there and I let the uh, central office know at that time that I was interested in the position. Why you waited so late? Well, it was just so much. It was just so much going on and I had to relax and try to get my mind settled to look toward another direction. This is what I really wanted to oh, do. And I worked one year and then after when I went in the military and so while in the military, when I graduated, uh, the draft called me. The Vietnam War was going on. And so they called me for uh, the military. And uh, I went there and I said, oh man, here I just got my degree. And uh, I'm, I have a job and I need to go uh, to the military. And so I had no other choice and I wasn't, I surely wasn't going to rebel, you know, I know that was my duty for my country. I worked one year at Thomas Gibb under Reverend Tino. Reverend Tino, yeah. And then afterward, the end of that, they told me when I went for my physical in New Orleans at the Custom House that uh, I would be called up again, Ernest Middleton and I. And there was about seven others, however, uh, they didn't pass. They, uh, we went during the summer, right after school closed, we went back and he 
man, they said, yes. They looked at us and they said, yeah, get in that line. Got in, grab a white box. And that was lunch about 12 o'clock. But oh no, a little earlier than this time, we had, we was three. And they took us to uh, Fort Pope. We went there and uh, we got there about two o'clock that morning. We left at 12 that night. And they sold us in as a uh, property of the United States government. Property, yeah. And uh, I stayed there. I did my uh, basic training in, at Fort uh, North Fort. And then from there I went to, uh, I left there. And boy, things over there were not good at North Fort. It was rough. You couldn't go to any cafe in Leesville to eat. It was the same situation. Oh, yeah. Couldn't go nowhere to eat. Every time they go, say, we don't serve blacks or what have you. And what was so gratifying, the people in the military saw what was going on, whites. And most of the guys from Oklahoma, they blend in with us and told us that, uh, when we went to a place and they didn't serve us, they told us, oh, you, we can't serve them. We can serve you all, but not you. And they said, if they couldn't serve me and the other blacks that went along, it was about 15, nobody would eat. And so we would leave and go to another place. Happened again to us. Nobody ate because of not serving us. And then finally we just went on back to uh, the base and we ate there. But uh, it was something, it was quite a story uh, behind that. And so finally we went to, uh, I, they sent us different directions for AIT, Advanced uh, Individual Training. And I went to uh, San Antonio, I became a, a medic. The rest of us, we split up. Ernest, I think he went to Colorado and some other behavior, some other place. I stayed at San Antonio, went to Brooks General Hospital, stayed over there for about three months. And I was married at the time. Earlene came, no, I got married, I wasn't married at that time. I got married during the Christmas. And then early, you know, December 23rd, 1963. Okay. And then uh, she and I got married. We got married down here on furlough during the Christmas holiday. And uh, but you was uh, already in the military. Uh huh. How long you had been there? Only about uh, five months. Five months. But I knew I wouldn't see her, and she was the person I loved. So I'm gonna so, marry so her. So when did y'all start dating? Man, we. I'm gonna tell you. I went. To, we graduated from G.W. Hamilton. I did. Okay. Erlene was in Franklin. Erlene was a majorette, and I like a majorette. What's that, what's that maiden name? Terrio. Terrio. Right. And that was Tyrone, Tyrone Terrio and Raymond Terrio and right. your mom knew all that. Right. That was classmate all right. But anyway, to make the story short, my sister was, they got to be friends and then finally, somehow or another I saw Erlene and I just started liking her and showing her that I liked her. And she being a major, majorette. Majorette would go with the football team, <laughs> and I would say, "Oh, look! Don't sit by this boy." <laughs> and uh, you know, they would go on the bus and come back, and you know, and I, and I didn't play football, and I wasn't an athlete, and the football boys were the ones who had the girl. 
Am I right, Lee? <laughs> 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 what you say? She, she paying attention. Yeah, so I said, oh, no. And so I would come, and I'm going to tell you, uh, there, there's another person entering my life that was Wilson Robinson. And uh, Wilson, Wilson was my buddy. And the guys from Franklin would fight you, you know, because you being over there and that's, talking to the girl. Big girl huh? Yeah, and she had a boyfriend too. Boy. I know she had one. <laughs> and I, but I kind of, I said, man, I like her. You go fight for her. Yeah, yeah. but uh, Wilson would tell her guys, hey, you touch him now, you touch, him. you gonna have to touch me, you know, things. But they didn't fight, you know. They would come in, start. We got to be friends, and uh, it went quite well until. Uh, so I'm telling you that I met her in ninth grade. When I was in oh, ninth, she was in eighth. Okay, okay. And we've been together ever since then. Mm-hmm. And we had a little rocky road going on the way. But uh, <laughs> 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 I'm not trying to re- bring up old things. We had a little rocky road, but it, you know, it materialized. You know, well, things he, got better. He probably grew up, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, and then afterward, um, I went in the military and we got back and I said, oh no, this girl, a young lady, I'm gonna marry. And so uh, I came back home. We uh, planned everything. The priest at first didn't want to marry us, the one involved. So he told us that uh, uh, it's too close around Christmas time, you know, the celebration of Christ's birthday. And he didn't want that. So finally we got someone from Four Corners he gonna tell. He gonna tell y'all what. what yeah. So the one from Falcon, huh? Father Hand. Yeah, Father Hand. He married, but the Baldwin priest didn't want to marry, and we we did use the church in Baldwin. No way. Saint Franklin, oh. you right? Saint Jude. We got married in. See, that's me. Don't remember all that. Oh man, that's, that's the that's details. Right. Yeah, I had Butch and Cornelius Packer all those things. Oh, thing, you man. know you married her. Yeah, right? I got married. I am a military, and the priest was very good. Uh, I mean, he understood, and he took us in. We got married, and from that time on, uh, I went back to uh, San Antonio. Oh, you in San Antonio? Yeah, San Antonio at Brooks General. Uh, I went to Brooks General Hospital. Later, I got orders to go to. Uh, Vietnam, they say Vietnam, but they sent me to uh, uh, Japan, Yokohama, Japan, to in, uh, I had this place, Transit. You know, Transit, that's where they ship soldiers out. And having uh, an MOS of a medic, I was a medical specialist. I was lucky to get to go to Korea. So I went to Korea and uh, I uh, stayed in Korea. Why, 30. Why, why you say you're lucky to go to Korea? Because they needed medics in Korea. Oh, medics. Okay. Yeah. And so, and so I was happy. So your education served you yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. So when I got there, I was lucky too. And when you get there, we went to uh, Seoul, Korea. And I was, I'm sure they looked at my record and they didn't need me right there. So I went to the next place. It was 30 miles above Seoul, which was uh, uh, Camp Mosher. We John Boo, they go. So now I got there and had a little young lieutenant and he looked at me and he said, oh, college education, we need a, I need an educational coordinator. So he took me in and it was at a hospital, uh, 43rd Surgical Hospital. So I got there and 
uh, he made me his educational coordinator for the unit. And then he told me, he said, I'd like for you to start teaching and you can teach anything you want. When he said that, that's fine. I was happy because it was math and I taught math and uh, made a little money. Yeah, I made a little extra money and everything and enjoyed it. Yeah. Because the military then I think was paying $50 yeah. a month. Yeah, about 60 maybe I got that. But it wasn't enough to take care of her back home. <laughs> and she would tell me, that's not enough to take care of me. I'd say, oh man. But I had a little security clearance and uh, I was working for the University of Maryland branch uh, overseas, Armed Forces University of Maryland. And they would pay me, give me a little check every month. And then I would try to send her a little money out there. And I didn't have too much for myself. And she still was saying, oh, whatever. But we made it. She went to work and everything. We made it. And uh, I was happy because I didn't get to uh, go to Vietnam. Things were really bad at that time. And then uh, that was back in about 19... 63, yeah, 63. And then after I went, uh, I stayed in Korea for 13 months. They sent me to Korea, I stayed 13 months. And to make time pass, it was kind of rough. And I just kept saying, I said, man, what am I gonna do for 13 months? Uh, after what, uh, I stayed over there 13 months. And they, in turn, uh, I said, I had to do something in order to, make the time pass. I wasn't gonna worry about home. It took me uh, 16 hours, you know, uh, to get to Korea by plane. You could go by boat or plane, so I took plane, I went by plane. And uh, I got over there and uh, when I got there, I had to do something to make that time pass. I wasn't gonna sit there. And uh, 13 months, and uh, so what I did, I said, oh, I gotta see. And I found karate. And that's what I started taking. Never thought I would do that. And uh, I taught class and I went to karate. I went uh, just about every day, Sundays, and went, you know, over there, 13 months. And uh, I liked it, enjoyed it, and what have you. And I got my, uh, my, oldest, my youngest son took my big certificate from the place, but I got my, uh, uh, this is my, uh, uh, Card. I got first degree black belt during that time. They, uh, so I stayed over there and boy, she would write and she would uh, send uh, requests, Armed Force net Network, and they would play uh, uh, Love Me With All Your Heart. And you know, I'd get a record from her. And the guys in my unit, all the medics, over there stayed together in a, the little Quonsum, Quonsum hut. Okay. And so we would stay there and they would listen for uh, this lady, uh, A Date With Dying, I think. She would play that record and would send in a request and they'd play that record, Love Me With All Your Heart. And uh, they would all sit there and listen and say, Mom, if you got one, and you don't want to come get me wherever we were. <laughs> well, we had fun. We, got a, we had to develop a closed bond, the, the medics, you know. And uh, so many things happened. Uh, there was a bad side of it where the cook that we had, he would bring us meals every, just about every night. And when it was time to rotate back to the state, he rotated before I did. And the rest of us, he had TV. And boy, they had to take all of us, and we took 
quarantine. Uh, yeah, well, we weren't quarantined, but we had to take x-rays for, oh, okay. for the longest to make sure we, were, we didn't catch anything. But we thank God we didn't catch anything. You know, everything worked out fine. And my job as a medic over there, I enjoyed it. I went from 11 o'clock uh, at night until 7 in the morning. And boy, I was 12 miles away from the DMZ. And sometime I'd leave, boy, you'd see a lighted sky up there on the north. And I went up around Poke Chop Hill. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Poke Chop Hill in Korea? Yeah. There's <laughs> a in Korea called Poke Chop Hill. Yeah. And uh, that's where it was a strategic area. When the uh, communists came down, the North Koreans came down, they came and uh, they uh, got up to uh, uh, that area, which is the 38th parallel. That separate North from South Korea. And uh, on the, uh, we supported the South Koreans. And on their side was Poke Chop here, and it was, a, like I said, strategic area. And the guys would be buried up on that hill when they did, you know, they were there. And uh, I went up there and I saw it, but I wasn't involved in it. But anyway, I stayed in Korea and I, I, I studied karate, and I got the first degree black belt. And uh, like I was in, I was stayed, uh, I would do it about sometime three to five hours a day go for practice every day. So, so, so you enjoyed it? Oh, I enjoyed it because there was something to do and I was working out and, you know, getting all that frustration sometime. And I kept thinking, you know, I've got to travel about uh, six hours, no, 16 hours back home. And I may not get back home because I was scared, man, because first of all, the plane uh, taking troops back, uh, we went on Slick Airline. That's the name of the flight. And they were coming in to get us a group to bring back to the state. They burned out an engine coming down. So that was terrifying, too. So it made me see a day later. So I had to get on the next day. I stayed in uh, Seoul uh, for a night. And uh, I got on the plane again. And then. Uh, now, 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 what area? You know, Army? Or the yeah, the Army. Army. Okay. Yeah, it was in the Army. Let me ask this question now. You just left a country that was not fair to you, was not treating you right, didn't treat your, your family, your ancestors, your mom and dad. You fighting just for basic human rights. Couldn't even go somewhere and pay to get a meal and sit down and enjoy That's right. So when you, when you had to go and support this country, go to another country, people who hadn't done you anything, and fight, what was, that, what was the mindset? Well, the point was this. Knowing what was going on over in those other countries, those communist country at the time, there's no other country better than the United States. Okay. I tell that to, even today, I still say, this is the best country that we live in. In, in spite of all the In spite of all that, that's right. This is the best country, man. You have more freedom. You can stay, man, it's... The countries are horrible. I mean, that particular country is horrible. You know, today now, today things may become, uh, have become a little better. But at that time, the way people lived over there and what you heard about other countries, and I know communist country, 12 air miles from that uh, area, they, they took carpet buildings 
like we have painted them the same color to make you see on the outline where the DMZ rolled around to see that there was a, their buildings are close to ours or what have you, but there were no one sleeping or staying in the building. It was empty. Empty. And they did all kind of things. And, I, you know, it was, you, you hear things uh, about how the people live. And not only that, they depended on the North, I mean the South, depended on everything we had, like medication and food and what have you. We gave them. I had a house boy over there who made my bed, shined my shoes. Uh, I would go out in the village, his wife sometimes, being a medic, uh, we we would uh, go and take care of some of uh, the younger ch the children like that, and not only that in the in the uh, town, people live a certain way. They had things hanging up in a showcase. Like you go to the store here, uh, you find suit dry goods in it. They had meat, look like dogs or uh, cat or whatever animal hung up in the showcase with a glass, you, you pass and you see that filthy thing right there and you couldn't eat that. No refrigeration whatsoever. They didn't have any refrigeration. And it, you know, it's just so many things that made me still and see, I mean, how I live compared to other countries. You see how they live. And it depends so much on us. Health-wise, People, you know, treated better. I mean, health-wise, over there, they have to live on what they can get. If that, you know, if we were told if one person got hurt over there, we had to take care of them. You know, somebody, maybe they come and they tell you, being in the hospital, they come and tell you, say, a GI truck hit me or something like that, whatever the case is, we had to take care of them. They knew that, they, you know, they would be taken care of. Yeah. So y'all, the U.S. was a, a place of refuge. At least y'all facility was a place of refuge for because oh, they yeah, were coming. Yeah. You all train wreck. Anything that happened. Yeah, anything train wreck. We were there to take them in. We would take care of the ladies. So. Then we had guys marrying the uh, the uh, Korean. Korean girls, right. and my job was to like a nurse, female nurse, prep her, get her ready for the. Uh, see the doctor and some you know i hate to say that but during that time there was some that couldn't come here because they were too i mean they had all kind of disease they couldn't come down there just couldn't come doctor would say would tell the guys and some of the guys of the other race they would uh go up to the mountain you know they like that girl little young guys 17 18 year old guys they were in love with the, the girls and they, they couldn't take it. They would go up on the mountain top and stay in the cold and, and try to commit uh, suicide because they couldn't take the girl home. The doctor would tell them, say, no, she, she's not uh, uh, fit or healthy enough to go home. And, and they would, they were, instead of them rather coming back without them, they would stay there. Or During the time, no, I'm sure some did, but uh, at that time they would, uh, you know, they cry or they were in love with that person, you know. And the way they met them was in the club. The club was available. They'd go there, and the way it was set up at the time, 
you go to the club and those girls would be out there and you were responsible for whoever you bring into the club. That's the kind of uh, environment you had over there. Could you, yeah, there was a movie that was, uh, we live on a compound and uh, everything was right there because if you walk out of the compound, you go out there, you had to be extremely careful. Now, if you go out there with somebody you know, like I had a house where I had to go out there and uh, I had some pictures where I had to take, uh, go, his baby had a hole in her jaw. It's just some disease over there, you know, and it, it didn't make a hole and the doctor told me what to do, take some Pfizer Hex, called Pfizer Hex and rub it every day and what have you. But I would go out there with him to his hut. And uh, that was the safest thing to do. Because if you didn't, there was some that didn't like American GIs being over there and what have you on the outside of the premises. And uh, it was pretty rough. Ooh, now, uh, so you, you done it, say, about a year and a half? I stayed about a year and a half, yeah. So well, about year, 13 months to be exact. So after after that tour, you came on back to yeah, the states. Yeah, and you didn't serve any more time after. Yeah, that. I did. When I when I came back, I went to El Paso. Eileen, did you come to El Paso? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You sure, you surely did. She came to El Paso too. When I came back, see. Uh, I got out of the service, and then when I came back overseas, from overseas, they sent me to El Paso, and I got discharged from El Paso. And so she would catch the bus and ride from here to El Paso to see me. Come see you, right? Yeah. Man, that was, that's a long ride. That's a, that's a particular back then. Yeah, and she would do that by herself. That was nine, it's a nine-hour nine drive to this day, I think. Yeah, too, yeah. On the bus. Man, that was tough, and uh, she would come in. I'd would be worried about her until she got back home, and then she'd get back on the Greyhound bus. Okay, now, how'd you end up back in the Barwon area? When, when I finished? Yeah, well, yeah. Okay, when I got back, being uh, the Vietnam War, it was still going on. The Vietnam, Vietnam War or yeah. the Korean War? Oh, no, I didn't go to Korea. Oh, that was before my time. Okay, I'm sorry. 53. I mean, the Vietnam War, but you, the Vietnam, you have to be in Korea, though. Yeah, they sent me to transit in Japan. Uh, I was in Yokohama, Japan, and that's where they would cut orders to send so many to Vietnam or elsewhere to fill in. And I was fortunate enough to go to Korea because they needed medics in uh, Korea. Now, in Korea, they have U.S. troops and the Koreans work together. They had them up on the front line, like, I mean, they were buried in, ready for, they're in a ready position now. They still haven't signed a peace, a peace treaty. So they're still in a ready position, foxhole, big guns, 105 houses, and everything, guarding at uh, 38 parallel. and. Uh, Right now, it's still going You're on. Talking about to this day. This day, right now, they have they hadn't signed a peace treaty. They only signed a truce. So they have to watch the enemy. That little man up there. And the enemy is basically on both sides because one side said they they the enemy, the other side said they yeah, the enemy. That's right. And we, we they had MAC meeting, military armistice committee meetings, 
and you go there and they have that line you probably seen it run across and the communists would try to take the biggest share of the, uh, the table <laughs> and um, their, ma their flag on the table was higher than the uh, American flag or something like that and everybody sit down and talk and every time they, they had uh, violations superseding what they call we violated we did this and they would always say we had more violation on the front line than what they did you know there was something over there. I was glad to get away. I'm going to be honest. I was happy to get away from that area because, uh, you know, I thought, I said, man, here I am. You know, all kind of thought entered. Number one, we had five boys in my family. And I figured they, you know, my parents could have, and it's, it's a true way to look at it. They didn't want anything to happen to me. But I could have gotten killed, and it wouldn't be as bad on them as they had a family with one person up there. So I just figured, you know, uh, you know, you start thinking and uh, about things, and you say, man, I'm not going to, I may not return. And you pray to God and have faith, and that's what, you know, help you a great deal. And uh, I just was happy when I got back to the United States. When I did get back, we flew into California. I had a flight from California uh, all the way into uh, New Orleans. What I did, they stopped in Houston. I got off the plane, went to, <laughs> went to the bus station in uh, Houston and uh, caught a bus to come home. You couldn't wait. I mean, I... I, I I was fearful of the plane because they always say that sometime a, a bird will fly into the <laughs> engine, and I, I'm gonna tell you, I just got. But you don't flew. You don't flew all the way from overseas. All from the California. way I flew, yeah, everywhere. But when I got, when we landed in California, uh, what the little town outside? I've forgotten what the part of that. Not Oakland, but it's somewhere around San, not San Francisco. Well, it's an Air Force base over there. We land there. I just uh, went to. Uh, I flew a car plane there and went to Houston. It was going to fly I mean, me all the way to New Orleans, which was closer, home. And said, you know, all I had to do was catch a bus and come home. Or well, somebody would have met me in New Orleans. But I didn't do that. I got off that, that plane. Boy, they laughed at me. And my mom, I met my mom and uh, my brother in Lafayette. And she. Man, she was so excited, she cut me in the head <laughs> with, her, uh, with her teeth. Uh, you know, I was getting off. I couldn't get off fast enough. Bam! She ran to the head. Yeah, you know, that was something. Me. I tease her and I tell her about that all the time. She was so excited to see. She about yeah. to eat you up. <laughs> she was happy. She, she was happy to see you. She about to eat her man up. Yeah, it was so much. But anyway, uh, it was so much. In, in between then, when I got back, uh, I can remember in El Paso, uh, uh, I went there and I met a Korean who had taken karate. I mean, he knew karate and Korea and everything, and he found out he saw my patch in my uniform. I got a uniform upstairs. I got about seven uniforms upstairs. And anyway, my belts, I got all those up there. I should have brought them down so you could see that. But anyway, uh, to make the story short, I started fighting in El Paso with a guy that, I can remember, well, he, he wouldn't fight me because they always said that the Koreans were much 
skill that they are. That was their art. In the United States, boxing is our art. We skill with our hands and whatever we box it. And this guy would not fight me until uh, we were in the gym and a lot of people looking at it. And I say, here I am, a grown man. I'm going back home. I want to raise my family and here, uh, go back to school. And here I'm going work with this guy, work out with those guys. They want to spoil. Man, I was scared. I'm not joking. <laughs> and I got in there. And the, the guy that I was sparring with was another Korean. But he had a uh, red belt compared to my uh, black belt. And so the, the instructor, he was teaching him, and the people were all out there looking. And so uh, make the story short. And he saw that, and he would tell me, uh-uh, uh-uh, don't hit, don't hit. You know, they would get close. And he said, stop, don't hit, hold back, boy. And it was something, and the people were just frowning at him, you know, looking at him, because the guy was tearing me up. <laughs> but I couldn't do nothing to him. <laughs> so finally, he won't again. So I, I, I saw what was going, so I started getting a little rough and uh, losing my cool. And after he could want to spar with me, I said, well, I'm, you know, boy, and I'm looking. Everybody looked at me. And then, so I got out there and started sparring. He, he gave me a couple good shots. <laughs> and then they told that they, some were walking out, you know, and they, they saw that he wasn't being fair to me. He gave me a couple of good shots. And uh, that's why I said, they are skilled at the art, man. I'm gonna tell you, those people are something else. Yeah, but you, but you love your karate. Man. I did, I love it. And uh, it came in handy. It did, it came. And, uh, <clears throat> and the integration in Franklin, Louisiana, what year was that? Integration? 1970? Oh, uh, yeah, right uh, around that time. I was one of the first uh, black teachers to go to a formerly all-white school. Now, let me ask you this question here. Did y'all have meetings before to this They did. They did. They had meetings. Preparation? Uh, mm, well, yeah, they, they told us that, I, well, when I came out of the Army, I went back to Thomas Gibb and I worked uh, about two more years, two more years afterward. And they saw uh, the superintendent's uh, assistant and uh, superintendent I know they saw, they had some people to come and check to see who would probably fit in a situation like that. Mainly because you had some diehard people who didn't want blacks to teach their children. And uh, so what happened? I uh, went to Thomas Gibb and I loved Thomas Gibb. I did not want to go and uh, several people came to me, even the cafeteria workers, I could remember telling me, Mr. Stormley, won't you go? It's going to probably be a, a blessing for you, and you, you, something may come up faster for you. And right then, you know, uh, I thought that thought came to mind, and uh, I wanted to make money to, where I can get to Raleigh and I get started and build a house and all that stuff. You know, I started looking at that and everything gotten more educated on uh, uh, the way of life of a married person or a married couple. And so I did that. And uh, I went to, uh, uh, the superintendent called me in and he said- uh, Who's the superintendent at that time? Mr. Boudreau, B. Edward Boudreau, yeah. Bernie Boudreau, Bernie daddy, Boudreau okay. his daddy. The and he told me- The former DA. Huh? The former DA, Bernie, Bernie yeah, his dad. And he told me, he said, uh, 
and also his uh, uncle, R.J. Uh, I never remember what the R.J., but his name was R.J. Butro. And those two brothers live right down the street, side by side. They both are deceased now. But anyway, he told me, he said, uh, you've been chosen to go to uh, Foster. And I said, yes. He said, yeah. He said, uh, and he came by, and he saw what I was doing at Thomas Gibb. And uh, the guys in Thomas Gibb was much bigger than me. My well, four corners had some big, big boys. I'm telling you. And yeah, they, Rev told me, team. <laughs> yeah, uh, Reverend uh, Tino told me, he said, I want you over here because I have a lot of girls that are getting married. They finished eighth grade, and they want to get married, the boys and all that. And they need some people like you. Like you and uh, Roy Lockett and a few others to come. Need some young people to get there to show them that that's not the way. Reverend Tino told me that. And I walked there and I said, okay. And I enjoyed it. Man, I got there. I love it. I didn't want to change. I didn't want to change. I cried. And the cafeteria workers, as I mentioned, told me, said, look, go ahead and give it a try. And I did. People in in the cafeteria, the cafeteria encouraged you. Told me, encouraged me. <laughs> I'm telling you, somebody hit the nail on the head and made me realize, you know, here's a chance. You may not get that chance again. So I went on over to uh, Foster and I started working and uh, Mr. V.J. Chauvin was the principal. He accepted me quite well. I got in there. Uh, I noticed I had to work with 37 children in my home room. And I thought that was quite a bit. And some of them I saw was repeaters and what have you. So I took the kids in and uh, I said, now I got to work with these kids. I know I'm going to be watched and monitored quite a bit. And I did. I took them. And uh, there was one family I could remember did not want her child with me. And there was statements in the family. And I knew it was about me but they didn't call any names. She said that her child was terrified knowing that I was her son's teacher, a black man teaching. And she would come to school and uh, she would walk in with a cigarette in her mouth, walk down the hall. And I told her, I said, look, ma'am, I said, you have to take this cigarette. You cannot come in here. And uh, oh, she just gave me a hard time. And every, uh, her husband worked offshore and he would come in she would take him out of my class and they would go somewhere and spend the day or just keep him away for a while from her husband, from me. And the child ended up failing. And I didn't do that for meanness. God knows that wasn't a thing. He just didn't stay there to learn. And I had people like Sonny Chaponche. Yeah, Coach Sonny now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great basketball player. Yeah, he was in my class. Oh, there was a lot of people, a lot of guys and everything, you know. Uh, she just didn't care for me, that one thing. So maybe about the end of the year, near the end of the year, that uh, she took the kid and they left. And uh, uh, the principal came to me and he told me, he said, you know, I want you to know. He said, I'm going to tell you now. He said, but about six weeks when you were there, the lady had a gun and she... Uh, Contemplated. And they had uh, uh, the police, I think, was, he said, but uh, 
come had come to talk to him about that, you know, that incident. And he kept it that's why she didn't come to the school anymore. Oh. And uh but she uh they just felt that way about me and I'm sure some other blacks had problems too. You know, and when they found out when the people found out about what I could do in the class and how things were going and the children the others loved me and everything and uh they, there were others. He came back to me the next year and he told me, he said, man, he said, you got me on the spot. I said, what's that? He said, there's so many people want to have their children in your class. They want you. And uh, as time went on, my secretary, Miss Emma Jean, she had her children. And when she got there and saw me at Foster, she said when her daughter came up from the to that point that she need to be in the, uh, the migrate level, she chose for Mr. Lawrence to say, I want my child in Mr. Almond's class. And, uh, you know, things kind of, I'm saying her because that was. Okay, now, now but, but, but you ended up at LaGrange, right? Yeah, I, I ended up at LaGrange. The next year they brought the children in. The next two years. No, how many years I worked at Foster? I worked at probably two years. The next uh, year they closed down the crowd, right? and Mr. Lawson was the principal at LaGrange. And so I went over there. Okay, okay now let's go back. So you, they, first, they first brought you into Foster. Yeah. Okay, that, that's what the first year of integration? Right. And you was part of a test? Integration for the... Well, I went in, yeah, integration. No, that wasn't integration for the children. It was the staff. Oh, it was two years of integration for the staff. Yeah, first. I went there. The staff was there. So they wanted. I to got a picture of the staff. Oh, too. I want to take a picture. I want to get that picture. So, so they, they two years in advance, they had y'all into predominant well white schools. Well, uh, what happened? Crow uh, Lagrange was being built. LaGrange was built in 1967, and then they had to wait. I'm sure they had to wait. And then Mr. Lawson became the principal, and then they moved to the black teachers. Well, they start the next year. They put all of us together, you know. That was my level, so they put me over there with Mr. Lawson. And then while I, as I worked over there, uh, I taught math. Yeah, that's what I taught math, all of math. And then uh, Mr. Lonson, I had a homeroom, and Mr. Lonson went to the board and asked would he, will they accept me as being his assistant principal? Because we had almost a thousand children over there. Well, that's that what time. I was going to say. That's the year I came. Yeah. About, that was the year, I guess, of that was the first year of integration mm -hmm. in, in St. Mary Parish. We ended up at LaGrange, okay. sixth grade, sixth and seventh grade. Yeah. Sixth and seventh grade. But you know, no, we had to take uh, children, I think we, yeah, we had to take from, uh, Park Avenue was what grade, ninth? No, no, Park Avenue was uh, eighth and ninth. Okay, eighth and ninth. So, okay. so Willow Street was first through fifth, so we were moving on to the sixth grade. Okay. So sixth grade, we had to go to LaGrange. LaGrange, okay. Well, what happened too, we had Thomas Gibbs student too. Remember we had, I don't know if you... No, no, that, that was like the seventh, 8th and ninth grade, Thomas Gibbs. Yeah, they stopped at LaGrange before they went to junior high. Oh, okay then. Okay. That's what happened, because we had that. I had them. 
Because I, I remember some of those students. We had, we had to take kids from Glencoe, we had to take from Thomas Gill, uh, Sherrington, Mary Hine and uh, Sherrington Elementary, Baldwin, G.W. Hamilton. So they had to bring, they stopped at us one, one grade. We took that grade, and then he went to Park Avenue. Right. So we took that grade. We had those children. Because I had uh, Ray. Ray was in my class. Which Ray? Johnson. Ray was my cousin Ray. Yeah. Man, Ray was, man, them kids love Ray. I had a good class. When Sam Jean's daughter was in there, and uh, I can remember they. Yeah, Ray, Ray was a great student. He was he great was, math He was, he was. Yeah, he was real. He was Ray was tough. Math. And uh, the kids, the white kids, wanted Ray. As we elected a, a class president, and Ray was chosen as the president. But I'm gonna tell you. And then I had the uh, two other, t a set of twins, black boys. Uh, okay. I'm gonna tell you who they are. Darren Harrell. No, they lived on uh, on Hogan Land. Uh, they dad had died. Uh, Abe and Abram. Hey, yes, yes. Remember yeah, them? I just forgot about that. Sharp kids. Man, them kids were sharp. And uh, there was some others. Uh, Emma Jean, I had Rachel Bourne, and uh, I had uh, what is Ken Bailey. I had all of them. Man, I had some. You remember the names? Oh, yeah, good. I remember this class. I had, a, in fact, a young lady now live in North Carolina. We sort of accepted her as our stepdaughter, or our extra daughter, Kim James. Oh man, that's the little girl that made me stay also in a uh, integrated situation because she was very supportive. And her mom asked, I said, do you, there's a black man that's gonna be teaching, and I went over to Foster, said there's a black man that's gonna be teaching. Do you wanna leave there and go to uh, uh, another school or do you want to go to Mr. Langston? Cause he lived down the street, and uh, she told me, "said No, I want to be with that black man." She came in, and man, I'm gonna tell you, that little girl was like my little daughter. She too, she was right by me. I, I sometimes I tell her, "Look, go play or something," you know. But she was supportive, and just everything we did, she look out. Man, that girl would go there and fix my desk. I, I'm not saying because. She would fix, organize things for me that I don't think anybody else could have done it. And you're talking about a student. A student would organize my... Sixth grade. Yeah, sixth have everything grade. my classes, you knew what class would come in, you know, what I had to do, you know, with this one or that one. Oh, man, that little girl was super. And uh, early, and I tell you, in fact, I, call, I got to call her now because they had some bad weather. Oh, down yeah, there. But she comes over here and look at, uh, talk to Erlene and I all the time. She retired too, but she wasn't a teacher. She worked for some company in Chicago, Illinois. Now, do, do you remember that first day in the first week of, Crow of Crowder Elementary when they integrated? Crowder? I mean, uh, LaGrange Elementary when they, uh, when they integrated LaGrange? What, yeah. that, what that first week was like? Yeah. Tell me what that was like for, for you as, as a teacher. Oh, boy, that was something. Oh, man, that was something else. I'm going to tell you, I had to have a, I got a paddle. Uh, and uh, I see have my paddle. It's in the truck. It's right out there now. And, you, go, you go to jail now for that Oh, paddle, yeah, man. but I had to have one. But I had one before with holes in it. Somebody, I think Langston gave me that paddle. But anyway, 
But I, I went there, and oh, it's so much to I can tell you that happened when uh, that first year they came in, and uh, Mr. Lawson. Well, it wasn't so bad when I was by myself. He left that year too, sometime that year. I had a bunch of old uh, teachers, and they were kind of slow, and uh, you know, I say slow, but. They, the kids would trick them. They could do things. They didn't, when they didn't want one or two, didn't want to have class, they would play a game with them. They'd get there and they'd make them fuss, and they would spend the whole hour fussing with the kids. They, and the kids would come back and tell me that. And so anyway, uh, but anyway, we worked on things, but uh, it was tough. I had to get the kids to play. Uh, and I organized one time uh, with Mr. Lawrence over there, I organized a softball tournament. I don't know if you were over there doing no, that thing. I, no, I, I'm going to tell you, I was there in the sixth grade of integration. Okay. Well, when, maybe. When when the first day in the sixth grade, Okay. we was fighting. Yeah. <laughs> you was there breaking up fights the first day on the campus. Yeah. And when we walked, because I had to, we walked. Uh, from your from, house. Yeah, from, yeah. from uh, where they went off of. Uh, off of Seventh Street, Eighth Street, Ninth Street, yeah. so we had to walk. Yeah. Right? And when we got when we got almost to the school, the first it, it lasted for a couple of weeks. That the the family of the white people that we had to walk through that neighborhood. Yeah. So we had to walk through the neighborhood to get to the very school. much so. Yeah, Jones so, Street. Yeah. And all so, that. so the white people didn't want us walking because remember we, we didn't go through that neighborhood before that. I see. So we had to walk through that neighborhood, and the grown folk was out there fussing and cussing. And hollering at us, but you don't know because you on the school campus. Yeah. So you don't see what's going on yeah. before the students get there. Get there. there. Yeah. So before we got there, the older the people out there fussing and hollering and cussing at us. Yeah. Go back there, you know, go back. So when we get there, now they had some tough white guys like uh, Richard Domain. Yeah. Uh, well, what about the DeRoche? Louvier, something Louvier. DeRoche. DeRoche. I can't remember the different day. Had all these guys in. And they ready to fight. Yeah. So we would start. We get to fighting, at or you know there was a lot of there was a whole lot going on that first two first week or two, but after a while you got a grip on it. You single handedly was able to take everybody, keep us apart. Then you was able to bring us together yeah. with karate. Yeah. I'm gonna tell you something. Uh, and that's what led to the part that when I got there, I, found, I did something, and, and uh, <clears throat> you, you're going to make mistakes. I don't care what you do. Nobody perfect, you know. But what I had done, I organized a softball league. Your softball team. Yeah. And got to play. And what I had a league going on. And I went there, and I said, okay, you go ahead and pick your team. You go pick your team. You'll go ahead and come and tell me the name and bring them back here. And I did that with the girls. Boy, I'm going to tell you, that was the worst mistake I had. <laughs> that was the worst mistake I did. Because the blacks got all black. One, we had an all black team with the girls. I'm going to tell you, the girls, that was an all black team, girls team. And they got the best players. <laughs> and they had an all-black, all-white team, girls. They got the best players. Brought them together. When it, I mean, we had about eight team in the, in, in, in the uh, league. The ones that were semi-integrated, they lost out. 
They've got that black team and that white team at the top. They played in the championship. And I called Mr. Lawrence out there. I said, Mr. Lawrence, you better come with me. I said, because things didn't come up. And I said, I know they go, it's going to be tough because I got all black and all white playing today. Well, Mr. Lawrence said, oh, okay, I'll come out there. Well, we got out there and I umpired uh, first base. Now, never forget that. Boy, all of a sudden, you know, first base, them girls were scuffling and trying to get there. And they made it there, you know, and it was close. Just and man, it was just close. But I was in it. man, if I call out or say if and it, you know, you it was what I did. Man, the girls would come. Oh, he cheated. He cheated. And uh, yeah, look at him. Man, they wanted to fight and all that stuff. And I got there. I said, Oh no, we're gonna stop this. I said, We're gonna stop. So what I did, I said, Now look, we're gonna start this league again. I want white boy. And the black boy. I said, this is how we gonna do it. You, the first person you choose, gonna be a black boy. Black boy, the first person you choose gonna be a white boy. And I said, I want you to go like this all the way until you get your nine or ten there. <laughs> and that's how I stopped that stuff, boy. I'm gonna tell you, it was rough. That first year was oh, rough. Oh, it was rough, boy. And I learned a lot from that, but I, I'll never forget it. They really wanted to fight. They were arguing. I couldn't stop them going upstairs. You talking about six, seven graders? Yeah, and they wanted, they wanted, you know, they just wanted to win and all that stuff. And it was just a lot. It gotten into the point that one or two of them came to me. Black girls came to me. Why we got to live like this? I want to, uh, I want to graduate, graduate from uh, Park, Park Avenue. Avenue. And why we got to go like this? Now we got to go to Franklin High and graduate. Boy, man, I had my hands full. Boy, I started oh, to well, think, oh, <laughs> boy, what's up? Yes, sir. I mean, you started bringing the boys in the gym and started doing the karate classes. Oh, yeah, I had that. And, uh, yeah, that, oh, man. That, that, I, that, was, that was really good because yeah, we didn't know nothing good. about karate. Yeah, and so, I know. think that's, that's another thing. I'm glad that's where it paid off, too, because uh, when I came back home, I was able to teach that and bring that to them. And not only that, some of them had ideas about what karate was. And it, I think, too, they were fearful of the fact that because I knew that I would do something more like that. Wait, you, everybody was scared of you. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would, God knows in heaven, I would not. I, I'd probably walk away or do something. I would never but, try but, to but hurt. Just, just the the yeah, I know. And not only that, some of them, if some of them would, uh, I thought about that, uh, if I would have a confrontation with one of them, bringing them in the bathroom or doing something, parent would come back and say, oh yeah, he knows this, and uh, you know, get a lawyer, he you may have done you, something yeah. like that, try to hurt him. My child came back and said he, he did this, and he was hurting and all but that But you stuff. was always fair. Oh, but man, I wouldn't have but, done but, that. But what I do I never, I never kicked ahead of kid. You never? Mm-mm, but if they had a problem, I never walk up to him like I wanted to kick him. I never did that. I never did anything. I tell you one thing I did. One of them called me one time by my first name. I was going. Uh, he was out of school, and I knew it was him. I drove because I would go check on the kid when he was absent. If he wasn't at school, I said, man, I got to go look and see uh, where is such and such a person. And I'd make it just before candy break. I'm going to tell you something else about that stage, too. And so finally I went out there, and I went through the park area and I saw him and he saw my truck and he knew that was me so he said Murphy hollered that the student yeah 
And I knew it was him. So he, and he ran behind a building or a tree back there around the wreck. And so I said, I'm going to wait for him the next morning. Boy, and he came in. I said, now I saw him. I've forgotten the kid's name. I said, in my office. Boy, he looked at me scared as could be. He went in the office. So I told Mr. Amogen, I said, I'm going in there. I'm going to shake him up. <laughs> I said, that's what I want to play with me. And boy, Mr. Amogen said, okay. I said, now, I'm going to lock the door. So now if you hear me holler, you won't be <laughs> We laughed. <laughs> I said, so, boy, won't she take it? I walked in there and the boy, man, and I started unbuttoning myself. I said, you want to act like a man? I'm going to show you how to. So I started pulling my shade off, tied everything. And I sat down and I said, you want to? And I couldn't even get the shade off. He said, but something. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. Now, I didn't ask him what, what, it, what it was. But he told, he, said, he told on himself. He said, uh, I said, look, son. I said, uh, you want to act? I said, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you how to act. Boy, and I just did that. Man, he cried and everything. I didn't have no more. Best kid I had after. He would come tell me things. Oh, we thought it was a market lab. Yeah, we, we all were scared of you. Yeah, I didn't know that, man. I surely did. You didn't? Uh-uh, I didn't know you had people. I didn't want people to be scared. I just wanted people to understand I was there to, you know, to try but, to help but, them. And but make that it. served you well. That was yeah. A, that was oh, a, yeah, it did. It helped. But karate, doing your teaching, when you line all of us up, that was a discipline about that that you was teaching us. Yeah. We yeah. didn't realize it. Yeah. Because you, know, you was teaching us what the purpose of it. Yeah. Right, not just to kick each other, oh, not to no. hit nobody. Yeah. He was giving us instructions. Well, I was kind of scared, too, at that time in teaching it, because I always figured there was a hothead in the group who was going to oh, probably go there and try to do things. We started with the nunchucks, and I can remember when uh, they called me into them and said, please don't, don't use the nunchuck. The kids were make, taking broom hell and cutting yeah, the stick them, yeah, and putting them in the shoe and coming to school like that with them. They were so fighting, they were using the fight with. Yeah, that's what they were going to do, boy. And what we were doing, because I had a uh, group from uh, Lafayette. I had uh, Black Knights from Lafayette coming down, people from Morgan City. And, boy, we used to have a little competition, boy, just twirling them nunchucks. And it was, it was a pretty thing to see, you know, everybody seeing everybody on time doing that. And so we just got away from that, and uh, it got better. And then the school board recognized that. I got a picture in the school board where they... Uh, told me that uh, they wanted to see what I was teaching, so I brought the kids up there, and they they liked that and supported it. And then after they had a group, uh, they had a class. Mr. Uh, Francis Coletta took me to New Orleans and bought me up, which uh, it went under some fun, you know. They had ways in doing that. And man, they bought me a lot of equipment. What all I needed? You got enough? I said, yeah. We had a trailer. We went down there with a trailer on the back of a truck. Took me down there one day, and they got me all kind of mats and stuff like that. I told them I needed mats and found me money for that. And I had a lot of those kids who were in that level. You know, I brought them in and showed them certain things and or how to move their arms and their legs and what have you. And they really enjoyed it, so that helped a lot, too. I mean, that was a, that was a tough time, and it just so happened, as God would have it, you was like the chosen one. Yeah. And uh, Mr. Longson was a good man. Oh, too, yeah, Mr. Longson was, was fair. You know, he was real fair. fair. It got to the point where the children would, would need discipline. 
they would rather go to Mr. Lawson and turn him <laughs> right. And he would tell me that. Yeah, because you were like a, you became, like we thought you was mean. Like, yeah, that boy, mean, Mr. Lawson, uh, mean. And you know, and, and them little girls used to give me that look, boy. I, uh, I mean, they, but then they probably would say something, but they were scared to say or whatever. But I used to catch him and tell him, I'd say, okay, come here. You know, if I saw one was kind of mad, but I could remember one time uh, the guy had an afro and he didn't want to get it cut. Oh, he was upset, man. I, did. I had a hard time. And uh, man, that kid, I brought him home. You know how long it took to grow afro? I know, boy. And he, what he would do was pat it down. And everybody, you had to have a certain, that was a school board policy. Your hair had to be trimmed a certain way. And man, man, I. He, I brought him home. The kids would come back and tell me, boy, I'd be so sick of hearing them every day. They had a group would come. But so, I mean, you told such and such a person to get his hair cut? And he said, all he does, and he'd come and they'd say, Miss Oma, all he does is just pat it down <laughs> you, you and get his hair cut. Yeah, he wouldn't cut it. Boy, say he'd pat it down. So I said, oh, man, what am I going to do? So I told him, I brought the kid in. I said, son, look, you got friends. I said, look, the policy is that you got to cut your hair and you got friends coming in and cut theirs and it's not fair. Boy, and I talked to him. Boy, he was mad, man. He was mad. That kid was real mad. And so I took him home. I told him, I said, the next time you come, he missed school for a couple of days. He thought I was going to forget it. I said, son, next time you come, I'm going to bring you home, bring you back to your mother. And I brought him back. Boy, I had a Ford Torino. He got out of the car on that side. And I got to his house, and I was going. I had to walk about from here to maybe two houses down. Bam! Slammed my door up again. Boy, I could have broken the glass. And I went around the corner, and it stuck, took off running. Man, he left. So I went there, and I told his mom about that. And I told her, I said, look, uh, your son uh, did such and such a thing. She said, well, Mr. Allman, y'all would leave the children alone. And I'll never forget that. She said, if y'all would get me... Uh, uh, leave the children alone. They say that would eliminate a lot of the problem. And uh, so I told her, I said, uh, so I told her, I said, uh, the school board has a policy, and I got to fulfill that policy. And uh, I have to go by what they're saying, what's best for the children. And uh, they didn't say anything was best for the parent. It's what's best for the children here at school with others around them. So she. Finally, consent, told me everything, and we made it from there. But I still say that, and I never got a chance to see that kid anymore because of, I don't know if he passed. He never did come back to school, and I never got. And uh, so he wouldn't cut his hair, so he went somewhere else. Yeah, he went. There. He cut it, but he didn't cut it short. He padded down a little more, but he didn't come back to the school. And he went somewhere else, but. That's what happened. I tell you, what something. I can remember there was some other incident. Boy, I helped a lot of children. I can remember. I never, never felt like I wanted to hurt somebody. You know, because I had the authority that I could abuse or do something to a child. That's not me. And uh, I get emotional every time I think of that, because I never did. That was never my intent to fight. Like I hear. People, you know, sometimes do things to kids and all that, you know, because, and I realize there's no perfect individuals. There are some, there were time and there were some teachers at fault they did something. 
uh, if it was a fault on my part, it was an accident. I didn't do that purposely, you know, or something like that. Uh, and to be honest, to tell you that I did uh, have one or two children uh, that a uh, parent maybe rebelled in some way or another. Uh, I apologized and I told them that. I remember one time a person I paddled and uh, she jumped and it put a little mark on the back of her leg. I'd give them three licks. I didn't do no more than three. And uh, I went back to him and I told him, I said, look, I'm sorry. I, I may have hit her there and what have you. I said, if you need to take her to the doctor, do so. I'll be more than happy to pay for it. Oh, no, said I. I just wanted you to be aware of it and what have you. But that was like the biggest thing that I ever had. Now, 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 what you think of these days where a teacher, someone in authority cannot even touch a child? The child can say what they want to say. In some cases, can hit the hit the authority person in authority and get away with it. But the person in authority cannot touch a child. Or even got to be careful what you even say to a child. What back in your days where there was those rules was was not enforced to that level. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about today versus your days? Well, I tell you what. Uh, first of all, uh, I say that. Uh, you know, you, you've heard so many times that it take a village to raise a child. Mm -hmm. And I can remember when I was coming up, my daddy gave, um, they knew what my daddy stood for. And that's where there was communication with the people in the area. Uh, if I would walk down the street and I was doing something that I should not have been doing, people could tell me, say, son, stop. Or I'll take this belt off and then give you one of the best whipping you ever had. I listen. I respect that. You know, because I mean, he could do that. My dad could do that, you know, whatever. And it got to the point, uh, you know, I look at the media. They got so many things that affect people today. And I think that's a lot of it is the media, you know. They get their children don't have... Uh, the time or care not to do what they need to do, you know, uh, like take, for example, get in that lesson. They go there and they play games and they do things. The time has come through the years. They let up laws that were given in the past. They say it was not right, not fair. Uh, a lack of communication on the part of neighbors and the friends, you know, uh, and where it's gotten to the point where grandmothers started taking care of children and the parents would go out and have a good time and and now they, uh, they get in trouble. Now they want to defend them and come back and uh, say you wrong because they don't wrong. But, and they're not teaching them. Uh, you look at your church, your churches. Sometimes you right here where I go, the Sacred Heart. I doubt if there's two children, young children, in the church at a mass. They don't go to church anymore. They don't take children. At one time, about maybe six, seven years ago, we used to have uh, uh, someone to teach the little ones uh, mass about the mass. They would take them out of the church, take them and go into the hall and work with them. And when they figured we doing the communion, time they would bring them back in and they would join their parents again. We just don't have that. 
We used to have a list of people, altar service. We don't have those no more. They just don't, the parents don't show a sign of interest to their children, teaching their children. So that, so and back in the day, my daddy would say, if you didn't go to church, you couldn't go nowhere. You couldn't go nowhere that day, or that whole week. You had to wait till next week. And no need thinking you go fool him and come back. Because if you did come there and ask him, then you know the rule. And if you come back, he tell you, he said, now you come and ask me that again next time, I'm going to put that belt on. And you wouldn't go back. I'm telling you, that's the way it was. But all that broke on. They said that was something. They did away with the draft. You know that draft? Man, could have saved a lot of boys and girls here. And it could have harmed a lot. But I think it more the majority of them, knowing that you physically fit, and you had to go and give two years of your time to the military for that's how it was. And some of them don't give a darn now. But if they had gone and they were obligated to spend, if you physically fit, you had to go and take that physical and go in the military. You were drafted. Now you could go as an RA. When you went in as an RA, that was three years. You could were drafted, you were called a U.S. And so you went for two years. But I, I was fortunate. During Vietnam, I stayed only 20 months because they knew I wasn't. They told me when I was getting out that uh, if I would sign, the money was there. They was going to give me X number of dollars. That if I signed for five years, I would be a, and a rank. I would make sergeant, but I didn't want that because I knew I wanted to go back to school and teach. And what happened, they just, knowing that I was, the school year would come, they let me out early. Oh, they let you out early. They let me out early. They let me out four months where school could start. Okay. Boy, thank God, man, I was able to come back and I got my job back. Now, once you got to LaGrange, how, how, how many years you worked there? I worked over there as a principal, up to a principal, about 22. You served 22 years at LaGrange. At LaGrange. Yeah. Teaching and everything. That's why, did you retire from LaGrange? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they wanted me to stay longer. Uh, they asked, uh, Lloyd Dresser was the superintendent, and he said that uh, they gave me uh, several propositions that I could stay at LaGrange 50% 50, 50 of my time there a day and go elsewhere to other schools. But I wanted, man, but I knew that I was uh, going to have to go and study new programs and all that, and I didn't want that. Because I was tired. Uh, I liked what the program that they had, but they were adding. But I knew that they had to have changes because this computer age was coming in. And you had to go to all these computer classes. And uh, it was something. But when I went back to take Michael Payton's place, uh, he, he, Mike was sick. He died, of course, when I went to Foster. Uh, Remember Mike Payton? I remember the name. I don't okay, know but he passed away maybe about 10, 11 years ago. And I went back and I took his place. They asked me to come back. Man, there was so many changes that had taken place. And with the computer, I, I wasn't too familiar with that. So many programs you had to fill out. And they told me, they said, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to help you. Somebody go come help and show you. Thanks to that little secretary over at Foster, Picard. And uh, she would say, Mr. Holmes, I'm going to show you. And 
but they came and they got me in. They wanted me to sign and they get in. And they got me and they forgot about it. Boy, the superintendent came and he asked me, he told me, he said, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, what's his name? Not L1, Dr. or something. But anyway, he told me, he said, uh, if you could finish the year. And then after the year, he said, put your name in for a principal job or something. And he said, uh, we'll consider. And I said, no. Nah. I said, I need to go. Because I had promised something, but I didn't have nothing more. When I went there, I worked four years, <laughs> four months. I said, oh, no, this is not for me. It's, you know when it's time to retire, and I knew it was time to retire. Man, I'm telling you. Boy, you got me talking a lot here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I also want to say that I still, uh, still in, in, in rejoice in the moment when you called me and invited me to come back to Lagrange Elementary. And uh, you honored me at Lagrange. You know, you had to, you had the student body, you know, you had to come see You were, I'm gonna be honest, you were one of the, the finer young person or young man at that time uh, that uh, I would say in my book, uh, my assessment of your behavior and everything, your mom and everything, they were supportive. You were a special person, looking back, man. You, I could uh, remember looking at you, you never caused a problem, and you were always there with anybody. Never had a problem. I don't think you ever was sent to the office. No, I had to fight sometimes, but we, but we fought before we got to <laughs> yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you never, and you always was good. Your brother, uh, Albert, always good. You know, just, just people, persons. Thank you. That's what you are. And uh, I'm going to tell you, I, I was so happy. And uh, there was a time that uh, I uh, had tears, and there was a time of happiness with you, man. I was happy to see that you went to Atlanta and playing. And uh, it was like uh, I bragged on you so much. And uh, to everybody. Uh, then there were times and, uh, uh, I, when, you, when I heard about your illness and your knee and everything. And that, uh, oh man, that hurt. I can remember, I would tell people, I said, man, that's a guy I want to see. So just knowing that he could do so much for the NFL and then in turn uh, come back home and help a lot of others. And, and I was looking forward to that too. Because yeah. I, you know, our dear friend, Bowley Wally Francis and my uncle Bud, they had always they had set so many great examples of coming back, but also just being a part of you. And that day when you when you invited me to come to Lagrange, and you had this this billboard and pictures and articles of me, mm-hmm. and that was I was just too. I mean, for you to honor me, I mean well, that was that was a special. That was your school. Moment. That was your school and everything. You know, uh, your town. Yeah, but you, and then you made, a, you made a showing. And I tell you one thing, if I call Miss Amogene without her knowing you here, and I call Miss Amogene, what kind of person was Lyman White? And boy, she has nothing but praise for you. Uh-huh. And the thing about it, the boys, your, your peers at that time, man, they love you. Even though I know you, may, you said something 
But you would come in. That's true. Uh, a problem. Uh, sure. You know. Think about. It. I didn't know too much down that way. Saint Marion work. I didn't know too much about the uh, area like that uh, until, uh, uh, you know, when I got to Lagrange and I start finding out where people live. But uh, black. They had one of them called black. You know, black. Uh, Deroshi. The big one. The big one. Uh, Deroshi used to live down that way. The best guy, I mean, good guy. He and a black guy that does, uh, used to work together. And he worked on his wife's uh, bus, uh, Giselle DeRoche. Uh, they are beautiful people, man. She would come to funerals and sing. She had a beautiful voice. But anyway, getting back to him. Uh, he and I were in uh, therapy together when he had, I don't know what he was, his back or his, might have been his back, but I had my leg when I first went to therapy. And he, Mr. Omelette, remember this? That's how you talk. <laughs> remember how things were as a grown man? You was a good person, yeah, I'm going to tell you. My mama and daddy, uh, they thought the world of you. They, I said, oh, yeah, I know. Mom was there. They, they would tell me anything. But Black wasn't, a, he was a big boy and he could do damage like you are. Man, he was a big boy, could do that. He was never like that. He was just a good guy. And I would sometimes tell him, like, you, that's who you ought to mingle with, you know. I said, sometimes you're having trouble. I said, you want to find, look at these guys. Look how they get along with other people. And uh, you ought to follow in their direction. Stay with them. Hang around them. you learn it. Even some of the kids were having trouble with their lesson, their subject. I'd bring them in the office and tell them, say, look, who's in your class? And I'd go there, and sometimes I didn't know, and sometimes I need to go. i say, who lived behind you, close to you or something? Get with that person. You having trouble? Let him have you. And I, it was always something like that rather than get out of there, man. Yeah, get out of there. You know, uh, you, you jump on him or something. Uh, like now, you was always figuring out a way to bring, bring the community closer. Yeah, man, I, I did, and I'm not saying it because you're saying it, but truthfully, man, I couldn't go to church and uh, read any of these books. I'm always having Sunday Missal, Daily Strength for Men. Lady gave me that uh, last Christmas. Gave me that for Christmas, and I sit up here, and, and I'm going to tell you, I'm not a perfect person. There are some things that... Uh, to, I, to many of us, you are. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a, you know, and it's for every day, uh, you know, sometimes I, I haven't, to be honest, I hadn't read that in a while, but I try to catch a day, something like that, uh, whatever, what the day is, uh, what is it, it's October uh, uh, 14th today, or 15? 15th. Okay, passage, verse, and context, uh, question. What idol or substitute for God have you followed in the past, or something like that? But I it read and tell you what what it is and give you a lesson afterward. You answer the question with it. But I hadn't used that book in quite a while. But someone gave me that last Christmas, and uh, but this is my book. I get here every morning. I try. This is I'm gonna tell you. Let me show you something. But I, I try to see every morning, and I keep in my mind. And I ask you just to read just that first paragraph. The fiat of the eternal Father, 
say every morning of your love, Father, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be thou my Father. Be always my eternal Father. Do not leave my soul. Do not abandon me. Do not leave me out of your sight, my Father, for I am your child, whom you have created to please you, to adore you, to honor you, living my days as you have given me the license to live it. I offer up this fiat through Mary to Jesus, to you, eternal Father. I tell you that every, every morning I get up, get up in the morning, and that's the first thing I say. Every morning I say that. I try to know, you know, life is short for me. These days are short for many. That's right, but uh, you know, being facing reality, I mean, I'm 82 years old, and very few people live to be 90. When, when is your birthday? May 17. May 17. So this coming 17, I'll be nine, oh, if God just give me that time, I'll be 83. So you born in 1942? 40, 40. 40, 1940. Yeah. Mm. What is that like? Now, I'm going to share something my grandmother shared since we brought this up. My grandmother, my mother's, my mom's mother, Emma Dale, mm -hmm. she and I were sitting there just having a conversation. And she was into her 80s at the time, late 70s, early 80s. And she made a couple of comments that was kind of confusing to me. I said, Grandma, why do you say that? She said, well, baby, I'm just preparing. Preparing for what? It's just like you're preparing to live, you got to prepare to die. And that was way beyond my mm -hmm. thought process to comprehend yeah. what she meant by yeah. that. And she started sharing with me how her sisters had already, all of her sisters had gone, she was the only one left. And there was her friends, her friends, everybody that she was close to, said, my children are busy, they got their own life. And that was interesting that you would see, you know, I didn't, had no clue my, that yeah, she was yeah. processing that. Yeah. But she said she was preparing to die. That's, you can sense that or feel that at this point in time? Uh, no, but I, I know facing uh, reality, there are very few people live to be 90 years old. And a very few people lived to be 100. I had an uncle, an old uncle. Uh, my mom was rather, she had an uncle who was 106. Um, the, my aunt, Dallas Gore, she was 89, she passed. Uh, my daddy was uh, 87. My, uh, I don't know, but, you know, there's longevity in my family, but you know, my sister passed away about three months ago, four months ago, the oldest one. And um, how old was she? Eighty-three. Yeah, she passed away. It's just something, you know. You you just have to face reality, you know. But how would you like, you know? You, you know I had somebody tell me an older a friend of mine. I brought him to visit some people house, another person, uh, a friend of his. When we got there, the person wasn't there. 
I, I mean, I said that wrong. When I got there, when we got there, I'm just driving him around. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lady came to the door, and he asked for his friend. He said he was stopped by the business. He said, oh, so-and-so, let's say his name was Leroy. Leroy passed on two years ago. And he was shocked because they lived in a little small town outside of where he was at. He said, well, I, you know, he was hurt. He was, uh, you know, he felt bad. Because he came back to the car to tell me uh, that he like, oh, so-and-so died. And I, I really felt bad. They said, I apologized to him. He said, no, no, don't apologize. You ain't got to apologize. He said, and she made this statement here. She said, and he told this to me, and I, it just it still resonated in my soul now. He said, uh, she told him, uh, we all are just passing through. None of us are here to Let's stay. stay. And that's yeah. what he came to, he told me that. And I like that. Yeah. Because you know, he was feeling bad. I've heard that so many times. Yeah, they tell you, see, you know, we just passing through. You know, you said. Uh, but the question becomes, well, why are we here then? What is that question? You got the answer to that question. Uh, I can think about it. I don't know if that's the answer. But I, I kind of feel right now at this present time that uh, we're here to help others. God wants you to love his people. Give that love that you have to them and show them and really mean it, you know. That's why we're here. We are disciples of him. And so we go just as he did and uh, educate others, especially those who definitely in need of uh, his love and don't see fit to it, you know, and hopefully you can turn somebody's life around and make them see that there's really a God, there's somebody to help you, there's somebody that, uh, and uh, believing in the power of prayers, which I do believe in the power of prayers, I do, and uh, I found that when, when I'm when I pray and ask God for things, He always answers. May not be now, I'm sure you heard that, but He will answer you and say something to you. Uh, and sometimes if you just be quiet and listen and concentrate solely on Him, and you feel that he is answering you, telling you something. That's the way I look at it. But uh, do do that do that that day that we all know is coming. Do that's that's a fear or that's a that's something you, I mean you you regret or that's a day that I mean we know it's happening. We don't oh, know it's what, coming. It's com- yeah, it's coming, but, and but, it's uh, I'm gonna be honest. Sometimes it's a fear. You know, it all depends. Uh, uh, you know, I always say, I ask God that uh, I always be in a position where I can take care of her mm-hmm. and be able to run, you know, and I fear sometimes, you know, I say, boy, something happened and she left behind. It's going to be hard on her and all that. Uh, because truthfully, we try not to, uh, I look back, we try not to, uh, interfere with our children's lives because I know they need to, you know, we lived ours. Oh, we haven't lived out, but when we were their age, we enjoyed our lives, you know, at that time. So I try to do 
not uh, interfere with them as much as possible. However, they, they constantly, they, every day, they calling us. How many children do you have? Three. With the names of Todd, Melanie, and Jamie. But they call every day. Every day. They may not call me. <laughs> but they call him mama. <laughs> they call her. Amen. Now, if they cannot get her, then they go they call, call me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, they love their mama, boy. They'll call mama. Where you been, though? What happened, you know? They want to know. If they can't get a man, I could be somewhere down the street, man. Uh, I, I'm not going to answer the phone while I'm driving. You know, I'm a pool or I'll get to the, yeah, what's going on? Daddy, where mama? I call her house. She not there. She not answering the phone. Not, not, how your day, not how your day coming up. <laughs> don't worry about me. Man, they don't worry about me. But I, I don't talk to them. Uh, I talk to them at least once a week. But I don't talk to them like she does. She talk all the time. And then again, I'm not going to listen like, like <laughs> she listens. Like most men. Yeah. Yeah, like, uh, See, I'm going to say, because uh, I want them to be uh, self-sufficient. You know, you, you can handle it. You can do it. But, yeah. Yeah, we keep motivated. Yeah, I said, you can <laughs> handle that, it, but do that, it. But that mom, boy, she, she got a real cold, touch man. in you. They, they love their mom. I'm going to yeah, tell you, they yeah. love If they don't, they're making me a fool of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they don't, they're making they love, a fool. They love Bob and oh, Dad the same. That's what it is. Oh, yeah, they love me, you know, because yeah. when I'm sick or when I was in the hospital. But yeah, you can't just talk, talk about that. You just, about, about two years ago, you, your, your, your knees almost like they froze up on you. What happened? Yeah. Well, I tell you. Uh, All that karate? Yeah, I think that mailman, <laughs> volleyball, basketball. All that stuff, man, uh, you know, all that uh, interfered, I guess, with the knees. Because uh, when I went to the doctor, I thought he would do a partial. And he told me, he said, oh, no, your knees are worn out. He said, we got to do that robotic. So they did. That's what a robot, you know, guide them or tell them what to do. Guide them and do it. And uh, that's fine. Man. Did they just clean them out, or did they no? I, they remove they remove my kneecap. Oh, oh okay. yeah, and they put a they put a new new uh, replacement. So I'm fine. So you feel now, like man. a new man now. Oh yeah, you, man, you, I can move. You can run a mile now. Yeah, I can stand up. I can sit here, what have you. Well, I don't know about running right now. It take a while. Well, you know? oh, how long ago you had surgery? Uh, I had a, in well, she said June. I did this one. I did the left, okay. but the right is, I mean, the right is hard and solid. This one is too, but I'm still conscious of it. I got to get to him, but he told me, my doctor, to see when I start this, because I, I don't kneel. I can't kneel right okay. now. He told me to wait, and then, then one of the therapists said, kneel in the bed, but not on a, or kneel no, no on a knee. Yeah, no, no hard, hard surface. Yeah. Uh, pad my leg down. And then again, I still had not moved them to the point where I could go back on them. You know, I'm getting there now, you know, but I can't get my heel to touch the back of the thigh of my leg. And I guess I'll never get them because even before that, I never had that. Even when I was a young boy, I never <laughs> had <laughs> I think that was the way the structure of mom and dad, man. Are you still doing your karate? Uh, I hadn't done anything, but I just do shoulder count. Get up there and do shoulder count. Get my shoulder because I'm, 
I'm exercising. Uh, I'm not doing. I'm exercising the lower part of, in the lower extremity, but I'm not doing the, the upper extremity. So I get there and I do this. I had a guy, a friend of mine named Charlie Granger. Yeah, I remember Charlie, football player. You remember Charlie? Yeah, a little short guy. No, he was short. He pretty big, stout guy. He, he tall. Played, he he short. He was about six three. Oh six, no, two, six, no, three. I, I, Oh yeah, from Lake Charles. Yeah, yeah, I know Charles. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I know that. Oh yeah, he yeah. played football. Yeah, he played at Southern. Yeah, he, he played, played at Dallas Southern. Cowboys. Yeah, I know and, Charlie Granger. And he was part of the the wood that uh, that that process. Oh yeah, because he didn't want yeah. to tell me about Marvin Robinson. Oh yeah, well but, you know I know Marvin yeah, Robinson. Yeah, but he didn't want, but he told me that his job was to clear out the dormitory. You yeah. could not stay. They say that they took some of the football players, yeah. the big guys. Yeah. Look, you go clear them out. Tell them if they don't, if they don't go downtown, they can't come back at the door. But I mean, but that Southern University story. I mean, I I was not expecting that. I, you, that caught me off guard. I had no clue. Oh yeah, know? Marvin Robinson. Uh, <laughs> And uh, uh, Rap Brown, I know Rap, man, and uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael did not come down there, but uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, Cassius Clay, rather, at the time, boy, he had just gotten out of the Olympic. He had won his medal. Okay. He, he laying on the campus, laying down on the ground on campus, newspaper, and his medal right there. Student would pass by and we'd stop and talk with him and look at him. Oh, okay, yeah. man. So, I mean, so he was very open and receptive. Yeah, he was old, man. He would come, guy. he was right there on the campus. And the Southern, being the largest uh, black school in the country at that time, you know. Uh, and it was a beautiful place to be. Oh, to, yeah, right? man, beautiful. Yeah. They have a beautiful campus. And I used to go around the Mississippi and uh, hang around that way, too, boy. Uh, they call it the bluff now. Oh yeah. But you know, I thought they called it the bluff because of that the area yeah. was considered the the bluff, so called. Yeah. But I found out that I, mean, I interviewed a young lady by the name of Julie Bradford Moore. She gave us that's some a, history. That's a familiar uh, person uh, too. I don't know. She she gave us some history of the university, and I did not know that Southern University was a plantation. Oh, yeah. It was the name of it was the Scott Bluff Plantation. Yeah. So I thought the bluff came from you know the, or part of the water, water the, the, uh, the where the water was uh, running and the thing, but the name of it was Scott Bluff Plantation. Did you know that? Then? No, I didn't. I'm yeah. be honest. And that's I why didn't. the area named Scotlandville. Yeah, yeah. Scotland. Yeah. yeah. So Scotland is named after. So name everything was named after the, the plantation owners. Scott yeah. Bluff. Yeah. Boy, that was something or the bluff. Yeah, man. He has a lot of great memories of it. Oh, yeah. What, what was it like attending Willow Street for 12, you did for almost, not 12 years, but you No, I went from uh, ni yeah, ninth grade to 12. What was it like at being at a high school? All, it was all of us there at that time. Yeah, point. yeah. What was it like at Willow Street at that time? It was good. Um, I enjoyed it because they, it was like a family, man. They had about 2,000 kids over at Willow. How many? We had two. But 2000, 2000, yeah, because we went from first grade all the way up to 12. That was the only high school. Only in the high area. school in the area. But there were 2000. You know, 2000. Verdenville children. Uh, the Verdenville or Centerville, not Verdenville. Centerville, Verdenville too. The, yeah, the Verdenville, yeah, Betty. Oh, yeah, Betty and all of them came. And Betty, Diana, Diana May, uh, Pellerin, Merlin Bourgeois. 
Janice Jones, well, she was ahead of me. But all, man, we, yeah, we had, man. It was like that. And uh, Mr. Minor was. He was still a principal when I was there. Oh, Mr. Minor was the math teacher. Boy, and we were something. Oh, that was that was some good old days. But Miss Cumming getting back to her, she was something. I was scared. They, they had too many kids in her room, so they had to take some and they started with Miss Carr, Evelina Carr. And boy, that, that lady, we used to have fun with her. And uh, they, somebody went told Miss Wells, who was my homeroom teacher, that boy, Miss Miss Wells, you ought to see the way Murphy fixed Miss Carr room. And, I could draw and do all kinds of things. Ms. Wells said, oh, no, that's what you call decorating somebody else's house before you decorate your own. <laughs> Boy, she got on me, man. I mean, Ms. Wells got on me like, no. you go take care of my room. You go fix my room up like this. Say you got her call. <laughs> Boy, and I got there and I did it. You know what that lady did? I mean, I finished. That lady took time out and made some candy, boy, good candy and brought it to school and gave it to me during that time. Boy, I was shocked. Miss Wells. Miss Wells. Miss Wells was a tough one too. Oh, she was tough. And she gave that to me, boy. Never uh, thought she would do that. And I said, and then I got in trouble again. <laughs> you got in trouble? Yeah, I got in trouble because she brought the candy and she was uh, in a, we were in, uh, it was free hour or something they call. I've forgotten we had that the hour off. But she told uh, uh, me, she said, oh, man, come here. I went to the hall, study hall where they were. You know, you had to go there. And she said, in my closet, I got some candy in a little box for you. Saying that's for you. And that's uh, because of what you did for my room. And save some. And she said, uh, that candy is for you and it's for Jenkins, Leroy Jenkins, who helped me. And boy, Leroy, around, they ate the candy. No, Leroy didn't get his candy at that time. I went in and Cornelius Pecco and Joseph Davis was in there. You know, Tony Joseph Davis, you remember David? You don't remember Joseph? But anyway, he was from Glencoe. They came in there, and I didn't know they were in there. I ate half of my candy, and I gave them a piece, because they came in and helped. And I didn't know they were in there. They went and ate all the rest of the candy. <laughs> and boy, you know Miss Wells. Earlene was in the room at the class. <laughs> boy, and that day, somehow or another, I had a little gray suit on. Boy, my little gray suit on. And I walk in the room. Earlene and the class were sitting down. And boy, I had to go face her. And I knew something was wrong. Boy, and I walk in the room, she said, just look at him. With a little suit on, like a little robe. Call me a rogue, everything. Boy, she embarrassed me in front of Eileen and Eileen and I was going, boy, boy, I was so ashamed. And boy, uh, I got back, you know what that Miss Wells made me do? Bring a whole box of Hershey candy <laughs> and give, oh boy, look what I'm doing. She gave me, me bring a whole box of Hershey candy and give every student in the room a candy. And boy, I felt bad. You know, I brought it. I charged it. I had a little job, and I charged. What you and the lady asked me? I said, "What you go do with the whole box?" I said, "I got to bring it to school." Uh, the, my teacher told me to bring it the next day, and I needed it. So I hadn't even gotten paid for the week. I was working at Bros, and, and actually, the candy cost more than what, <laughs> what you were making. <laughs> what I was making, and I brought it. 
and uh, Wesley Beverly. Thought it was unfair what the guy had done, you know, and went back and boy in PE. Wesley, man, he took up from me everything, but I'll never forget it. Boy, Wesley started fighting. He hit the guy with his ring. We had a class ring. We had gotten our class ring, hit him, boy, right in the forehead. And the man, that snake, the rattle, <laughs> came out on his feet. Boy, hit him, boy, with his fist, boy, right there, boy. And I said, God. But he didn't get in trouble. But the guy didn't tell. You know, it wasn't like he was telling on me. He just simply went back to Mr. Wells and told her that he couldn't find the candy. And the, oh, the candy. Oh, oh, he just said, well, go get the box. She didn't, to make sure, she told him to go get the box. So he went and got the box and brought it back. And uh, he didn't tell you. Look, just, just, just so happened that you you were sharing some candy with the, with the other guy. Not, yeah, I shared with them. Not, but not they, knowing they was going to go back. I didn't know they were going to But you knew that you should have known they were going to go back. Yeah, well, I didn't know that. But they went there and they took all the candy. And when the boy, she told him, oh, I can't believe I'm going to take that candy. So you go get that box. And then he went there and he said, it's a box. And he brought the box. Well, I'll be doing it. And that's when he yeah, called me. She called me in that classroom. I, man. Look, this whale was about five feet tall, but the baddest oh, thing around. Oh, boy, I was scared of that lady. Everybody man. was scared, scared of this she, whale. She would talk, she, you're lying. And she, you know, she'd tell you in a minute, you're lying, you're not telling the truth. Hell on. But I, I respected her. Now, now, when you decorate your room, what do you mean? How did you decorate Oh, I did. Room? I did some drawing. I fixed a, I did something with the board. I, I put a little... A little letter where she could go every day and change the date. Somebody could take. I did some drawing, all kind of drawing. It was pretty, man. And color painted, watercolor, and painted uh, posters and had it all nice things that she. So you were really good at that. Yeah, I was kind of good at that. And boy, they told on me, boy, and she just plastered me, boy. That's what you mean. That's what you call, boy. And I was scared too. And she, but she loved you, man. She loved her teacher. She wants you to do, boy. She'd come in there. And uh, every day, man, you had class. He looked forward to a class because he was learning. Mr. Miner taught us math. Those were those classes, man, I enjoyed. Everybody enjoyed. They'll tell you, Mr. Miner, Ms. Wells, best classes you had, boy. You enjoyed. They, they knew how to make you learn, man. They would teach you and everything. Mr. Miner, Albert Foucault would get up there sometime in Mr. Miner class. Now you're right. Every time Mr. Miner would put a rock problem, he worked and he'd be working at algebra problem, and then uh, Albert or how, now you're right. And boy, Mr. Miner was a folk art. Son, I don't want you to say that. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Why you would say that? It just, just something Albert would pick on. Albert, we, we had a good class, man. Everybody <laughs> would just have fun in Mr. Miner. You learn, and but it was so much. So Mr. Miner, Miner would put that, you know, he put that finger in his mouth yeah. and he'd shake his head. Uh, son, <laughs> next time you go bring your people back. Uh, so y'all said Mr. Miner was fun. Oh, he was fun. He was fun, but he would teach you a lot, man. He, his class was fun, but boy, he, see, see, by the time I came up, he, both of them, him and Miss Well, was principals. Yeah, so yeah, they, they, was, they, they were not weren't teaching. teaching. Okay, but Mr. Mister Miner, boy, it was fun. We'd go in there. Tyrone knew. They knew I was lacking early. And Tyrone did something in the house. Now you're right, Mr. Miner said. Who said that? He said, well, I'm like, who said that? I said, I don't know. He said, son, I'm going to come back there. And boy, when he said that, Terry, you'll see. 
I tell, you and up, somebody right? told me, said, boy, he telling on his brother-in-law. Uh, boy, I told him, yeah, boy, I didn't know what Mr. Miner was going to do, man. I was, oh, man, I was. Not, not what Mr. Miner used to say, show you right. He used to say that or something? Uh, yeah, not, uh, no, he, he, uh, Albert just started that. Oh, Albert started yeah, it. Yeah, he started okay. saying, now you're right. You ask your mama. Albert uh, would say that, now you're right. And everybody else starts saying it. <laughs> now you're right. <laughs> and boy, and Mr. Might would be up on the board, and boy, and he'd look around, and he didn't know who would have I been. Mean, he would fix it. He'd be working it, and he'd say, wait a minute, wait, maybe I'll, let me check this. And he'd say, oh, I did something. And he'd say, now you're right. <laughs> and boy, Mr. Might would get mad. Boy. He'd say, son, if I hear that again, you go bring your people back. <laughs> and he meant you had to bring one of Oh, that was that, now you're right. Huh? Oh yeah, boy. Now you're right. That's your mom, buddy. She so that, that became a big thing. Huh? Oh yeah. Now you're right, boy. Albert would say something, boy. We would laugh. It, it was funny though. But Albert, Albert was smart in that math too. Well, I'd like to thank you, Mr. Armland, for being here today, for sharing your heart, so much truth and insight with Count Time today. That it's been. Truly, a, not just a blessing, beyond a blessing, and an honor for me to sit by, to sit here with such a great human being, and I never thought we'd be sitting here and having <laughs> this kind of dialogue or conversation. Oh, man. So, I mean, I'm honored to have done here. Thank you for taking the time out to be a part of Count Time. Thank you for sharing your heart, your story, your, your what, what you call that? Your travel, your journey. Through this town, through this city, through this state. You know, I tell you, I enjoy it too, because you you taught me a lot of things, uh, told me about a lot of things that uh, transpired in your time, and things. Some things you told me about, I didn't know you were aware of those things. I enjoyed it, but it was something. Yeah. But you you just thankful. You made the best of whatever situation. You were. Thank God for everything, boy. I tell you, I really do. Yeah, I thank God. Just, Man can shackle the hands, the man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.